Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Good morning and welcome to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. This morning, I have the great pleasure to speak with Anandish Chowdhury, the Professor of Experimental Economics from Auckland University. I wanted to talk to him about his recent article in Bassett, Brash and Hyde on how Labour stuffed up to lose the last election and his thoughts of the direction he sees New Zealand heading after this coalition negotiation. Helen Houghton, leader of the New Conservative Party, will stop by for her thoughts on the coalition negotiations and the wins in the areas of RSC education. And then I welcome to Counterculture the lovely Liz from our Reality Check inbox to go through some of the feedback from last week's show, the most we've ever received in my reactions and your thoughts and comments in regards to the interview with Frida Wallace. Marty will be back, of course, with Media Matters, and man, do we have a lot to chew over this week. Our reflections on the coalition agreement, where to from here, and of course, we'll talk about the little saucy menage a trois that we now have in our government arrangement. We'll then take a stroll down to Aotearoa Farm, or is it? We'll do that in just a moment, but now it's time for a little music. This Icelandic band burst into the charts in late 2011 with the song Little Talks, It's of Monsters and Men here on Reality Check Radio. There is a change in the air on Aotearoa Farm. Winnie Ben is at the front gate of the farm, nails puckered into the corner of his mouth, furiously hammering with his hoof at what appears to be an old sign on a fence post next to the entrance. That's much better. <clears throat> the old donkey beamed with pride at his work and clopped back down the driveway with purpose. Sha-la-la, the gilded show pony who'd been watching the spectacle from the adjacent pasture, one that he was about to vacate, with disbelief 
the audacity of the old equine fossil. How dare he? What was creating such angst and causing the pristine pony to pout? It was the sign that Winnie Ben had obviously been keeping with him down at the back paddock for the past several years. Kiwi Farm was emblazoned in big, bold, black letters on a worn Rimu slab. Kiwi Farm established 1840. It appears that Winnie was not going to let the grass grow and was settling back to his work, righting all the wrongs he was able to negotiate with Winky Lux and Davy Piglet in their recent negotiations. Even Davy had a smile on his howdy-doody dial. He was resplendent in a new pink tie, touting a clipboard for his very important role of Minister of Regulation. What that exactly was, no one was too sure, but Davy felt most gratified to be given such a seemingly important role. Winky was just relieved the negotiations were over and he could finally move into the farmhouse and the seating arrangements for the farm table were set for the next several months. Winky finally managed to wrestle the keys off the farm's grain silo from Squealer, who had departed hastily to his new paddock assignment, as it was time for Nicky Sow to do a full accounting of all the feed in the stores for the coming year. Winky had a sick feeling that the news was going to be so bad it would uncurl any pig's tail. The only one not surprised, of course, was Winnie Ben. He's worked with Squealer before and knew of his penchant for expensive grain and feed distribution and ordering in additional supplies from off-site suppliers on tick. The other animals also feeling skittish were those who were fed directly from the farmhouse, especially the sheep. Winnie Ben wasted no time lambasting them for their sycophantic behaviour and none of this would be tolerated on his watch. He also suggested they may wish to redevelop their taste for grass as the rich feed from the farmhouse store was now going to be in very short supply indeed. Meanwhile, down at the front of the farmyard gate, a gathering of back paddock dwellers was starting to amass. Chickens, cows, ponies and pussies, all variety of animals who'd been banished away from the central farm by Napoleon's crew and the free-range pigs shouts, snorts and jeers. Winky walks out to the farmyard and looks down the driveway with Winnie Ben and asks, What are you lot doing down there, Winnie? Well, there's a party going on right there. It's a celebration. It should last three years. So come on, Winky, bring your good times and your laughter too. We're going to celebrate your party with you. Now, come on now. Join me next week to hear how the new government is settling in on Kiwi Farm. Yep, you heard it. Kiwi Farm, exclusively here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR.
Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. You are with Marie. And this morning, it is so great to welcome back Professor Ananish Chowdhury, Auckland University Professor of Experimental Economics and the writer of the book Nudged into Lockdown, Behavioural Economic Uncertainty and COVID-19. Good morning, Ananish. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Thanks, uh, Mary, for having me. I know. I, just as we got started, I said to you, I can't believe it's six months since we had you on RCR. Where's that time gone? It's just That's blind. right. No, I, I think I was on Paul Brennan uh, more recently because I wrote this uh, article about, you know, how claims that New Zealand saved 20,000 lives is that's right. kind of meaningless. So I think oh. I think I was on Paul, yes. Yeah. But and, okay. and of course, the best news about all of that is if anyone wants to look up those interviews with the new app now, it's easy peasy. Correct, so, correct, yeah, it's correct, really good. Correct. So, yeah. I wanted to get you on because I am a keen follower of the Bassett Brash and Hyde blog. And correct. I came across your article published November 2nd. And this is a paragraph from the article. Uh, it's entitled Labour Stuffed Up. That's why they lost a deal with it. In the article, you cite Labour lost because the average punter on the street was sick and tired of the incompetence, the lies, the hypocrisy and the incessant identity politics. They lost because our police were perfectly happy to beat up on the protesters in Wellington, but are unable to protect a women's rights activist in the middle of Albert Park or store owners being ram raided over and over. Labour lost because we shut our own citizens out of the country and let small businesses go to ruin in the guise of saving lives. And then they blamed those businesses for not being resilient enough. You didn't hold back. <laughs> no, no, I mean, because the reason I wrote that was, I'm sure you've noticed this. So I, I saw this uh, article in the Herald by Rob Campbell, who it's among other things is a chancellor of uh, Auckland University of Technology, and and he said something along the lines of this election was bought and bought cheaply. Fine. Then um, I read something by David Williams in Newsroom talking about the taxpayers' union and sh and shadowy figures and funds. And there was a there was a lot of others. I'm sure I you know, there are many others. So, so the reason I, I felt compelled to write that was because, first of all, when Donald Trump said the election was stolen, we, of course, you know, we were aghast, right? Mm. And that election wasn't stolen. You know, many of Trump's uh, lawyers have now pled guilty, as you as you know, in Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, Kenneth Chesbro. Anyway, but then it came to our election and all of a sudden, you know... <laughs> People were saying the same things that we found so outrageous before. And I wanted to say that, you know, it, it wasn't that some people gave, sure, some rich folks gave money to National Act, but that those things we know, those things don't sway elections as much as people think they do. No. And what? so really, why do you think Labour failed so spectacularly to read the room on this? Well, I, I don't know the inside workings, but my um this is this is what I, I have talked about. So I think in 2017 Labour didn't expect to win that election. And so they had they started with a very thin talent pool. And then of course they you know got the keys to the castle. 
And they were well on their way to losing in 2020 before COVID hit. And then once COVID hit, and Jacinda Ardern, you know, with the first lockdown, she became very popular. That they, they kind of became a one-trick pony, I thought. Mm. So all of a sudden, we were this team of five million, you know, that could show the rest of the world. There's an enormous amount of hubris involved. The adulation went to their head. And I think partly, and I, I could be wrong on this, so partly also what happened was once they brought in the vaccine mandates, it, it just, they just kept doubling down. And I think with the vaccine mandates, they lost a lot of the Maori and Pacifica vote, I think, or support. And then to regain that, they started things like, you know, breaking up the health system into Te Whatuora and the Maori Health Authority, which was, I think, by all accounts has been a failure. And that certainly wouldn't or shouldn't have been a priority at that time. You know, who breaks up the health system? Already the health system is under under pressure. And now you're ramming through some of these. So I think they were kind of lost in their own bubble that and completely failed. to. I mean, think about it, right? Uh, Jacinda Ardern could barely came and visited her own constituency in Mount Albert during the lockdowns. And I thought, I think, I guess eventually they thought that somehow or the other, you know, they would get by. Because they they got spanked in Auckland at this election. They lost massively in Auckland. Yes, I mean they lost they lost massively. I mean think about it. Jacinda Ardern won Mount Albert by twenty thousand votes, and Helen White is clinging on to a twenty vote margin. Yeah, and Mount Roscoe too. And I mean I know some are blaming poor Pacifica voter turnout. Well, you know they may not necessarily vote against. Labour, but they can certainly abstain, can't they? Correct, correct, correct. So I'm certainly not a huge expert on on voting patterns and things, but it was obvious, as I said, you know, different people had different grievances. Not everybody had the same sort of grievances, but through our day-to-day lived experiences, I think everybody felt something has gone wrong drastically with the country. As I mentioned earlier, I've lived here for 20 years now, and I have two daughters were born here. I don't think I've ever seen this amount of kind of anxiousness and angst and social division uh, that we had before. I mean, we, we never had this before, mm. right? I mean... You may have liked Helen Clark or disliked her. You may have liked uh, John Key or Bill English or disliked them. But this visceral sense that I got against kind of the, some of the Labour Party politicians, mm. there was a lot of condescension also, I, I felt. I felt, you know, as I wrote there... Mm. Well, you write it, your following paragraph then says Labour lost because they engineered a transfer of wealth from the blue collar to the white collar, from the young to the elderly, from the mom and pop grocery stores to the big supermarket chains. And that was certainly something I observed. I almost feel like, because I identified with you, like I lived in Mount Talbot in in, in that electorate for a time. So I voted for Helen Clark. She used to come into my place of work. 
her superpower, if she had one, is she had an elephantine memory and she could memorize people, contexts and names. So when I ran into her many years later, once I'd moved down here, ran into her at the airport in that final election campaign before she lost to John Key. And she stopped, she looked me straight in the eye and she knew exactly who I was, right, how right. are you? Now, that is a skill. And, and, and that was something that she transferred into, you know, huge popularity. I feel like Labour is having an identity crisis. They've kind of lost themselves. They've lost who they were at that time. You know, the party of Helen Clark completely forgot who they were under Jacinda Ardern. Yeah, that's certainly true. Uh, I mean, in many ways. So, so some of this is so kind of contradictory and counterintuitive. So today we are talking on and on, or towards the end, Labour was talking on and on about the grocery market and you know how we have these two chains and they're so powerful. We need a grocery commission. But did we really need to shut down the local butchers and local green grocers? Why? Why did we do that? But if you said those things, you were a granny killer and you were, you know, COVID skeptic. But why did we have to do that? I mean, just to put this in, I mean, I'm sure you know this, right? So, mm. so as I travel the world now, one thing I realize is that the vast majority of countries just don't understand how stringent our level four lockdowns were because most of the countries had nothing like that, even at the height of their lockdowns, uh, you know, take out places were open because the risk is so minimal that shutting down these businesses and then saying, oh, you're not resilient. How, how would they be resilient? That's by definition, a small business is by definition, a small business, right? They are not going to have enormous amounts of savings to fall back on. And also they kicked the can down the road, being, having been like, I am a business owner. So in that period of time, they kicked the can down the road because I have to admit the freeness in which they distributed funds Correct. to those who were business owners to keep wages going and the like. And the lack of oversight on that, I found quite disturbing. And I keep saying to my husband, I said, this is this has got to bite someone in the ass somewhere along the line financially. You can't shell out hundreds of millions of dollars and not have that check dual bounce at some point. So economically, what we could you see that right from the get-go that there was going to be choppy waters ahead with what they were doing? So I, I I wrote a column, I think December of 2020, maybe thereabouts. I said this amount of money printing is going to come back and hurt us badly because there is no no way. See, that's exactly. So I was recently at a conference where um, David Stockman, David Stockman used to be uh, Ronald Reagan's director of office of management and budget. He talked about it, but he talked about it in the U.S. context, right? And he said that one reason why people were not up in arms was because there's so much money being thrown at them, right? So he talks about uh, in the United States, some $6 trillion were, were kind of pushed out in 12 months. But here's the other issue, right? The other issue is that a lot of this actually went to kind of the top tier, right? So I, I talked about this. So what did we do, right? So we shut the economy down, creating essentially engineering a bit of a recession. And then to protect us from that, we printed enormous amounts of money to keep interest rates low, right? 
But as a result of that, if you look back, if you look back all the way to the start of the pandemic, there was a brief period in March, April 2020, when the share market and the housing market kind of briefly tanked, but then they took off massively, right? And in the United States, for instance, people, you know, most of us, like the what we call the, the laptop class, right? The people, the white collar workers who didn't lose their jobs, who could work comfortably from their homes, we then kind of leveraged the equity in our properties, in our houses, and we invested them. This was a, a big uh, time for groups like Robin Hood in the US or ShareZs in New Zealand. So we put the money into share markets, you know, we put the money into, into property and things like that. And that generated a massive housing and share market bubble. And the reason I say this is because this acted act against people who didn't own, say, property, right? And one of the things that I also uh, think now is that our political representation is also quite lopsided now in the sense that the elderly, now you can define elderly as, you know, people who are generally older, they own a lot of wealth in the form of property, right? And so our political class has also come to represent their views a lot more than the views of the of the typical blue collar. And this is where you mentioned this point, right? This is where I found it surprising how much labor has drifted away from representing the, the views of the blue collar workers. And they be, have essentially turned themselves into a party of kind of this culture wars on identity and, you know, right trans rights and things like that but that's not i'm not saying that's not important or useful but they have essentially become a party of of those values rather than looking out for the blue collar workers right i mean i always say this so i i at the time the new york times wrote an article saying oh stay safe get your get your food delivered <laughs> <laughs> and I felt like saying, what the hell? Who is delivering your food? What about those people? Yeah. Right? What about the supermarket workers and the janitors and the cleaners and the frontline workers? They they have to be out there. And then, you know, people like me who could do my lectures on Zoom, we were, you know, like, yes, locked out. It was it was it was bizarre. No, it's truly bizarre, and and it is interesting that when you see some of the inquiries, like particularly they have one currently going on in the UK, where they're now finally examining these things and being critical. Do you have confidence that here in New Zealand, with the current setup of the inquiry that is going on at the moment, will that actually give us any answers in terms of preventing some of the mistakes made, or if they deliberately set the framework in order to give themselves a pat on the back and oh yeah we didn't quite do that right but that's you know never mind <laughs> I, I i'm supposed to be uh, i take part in a workshop on friday uh, so i i don't know i probably should be circumspect i'm not terribly optimistic given the terms of the inquiry and and the I, i'm not terribly optimistic that there'll be a lot of soul searching uh, over this uh, but but maybe maybe I'll be proved incorrect. So let me just let me just backtrack for a minute. So one of the things that happened, and I'm sure you understand this, is 
alongside the kind of the social and psychological, maybe the economic impact, we have had a massive overreach of government policy. And I think a significant amount of damage to our democratic institutions, right? To take one example, we passed the Public Health Response Act under urgency, which allows police warrantless entry into homes to enforce social distancing protocols. Now, I think that law has been allowed to lapse, but we did allow this. This is considered a fairly fundamental check and balance in a democracy that police cannot enter your home without due cause or probable cause, right? Then we passed Standing Order 55 of Parliament, which allows the Prime Minister to to prorogue or suspend Parliament at the at the suggestion of the Director General of Health. But the Director General of Health reports to the Prime Minister. This is again considered a fairly fundamental check and balance. Now, when the Prime Minister goes to the Governor General or when the UK Prime Minister goes to the to the King and says, you know, prorogue Parliament, it's not as if they're going to say no. We won't, but at least it provides a check, especially because in New Zealand, we don't have an upper house and things like that. So we have caused an enormous amount of damage and more fundamentally kind of trust in our institutions, I think. Well, you just had to look back at the law that was rushed through at the end of 2021 in order to enact the digital passport system Correct. and you know Correct. when you have what two leading law professors in Amnesty International calling New Zealand the New Zealand government out on their lack of due process for its citizens you know something's a bit stinky in the state of Denmark isn't it Correct so the first 9 days of lockdown was was found to be unlawful we had to we had to amend the law uh, MIQ partially unlawful vaccine mandates partially unlawful the prevention of citizens from returning their to their country certainly uh, a contravention of international law. So all of those things happened, and very few people protested. Everybody kind of said, eh, "Okay, you know." Again, I mean, I I, I say this, and uh, you know, people kind of look at me askance. I said, "You know, Donald Trump separated families at the border, and we were all outraged, rightfully so." But then Jacinda Ardern did the same thing essentially, and we said, ah, okay. Because mm. many families were separate. I mean, I'm sure you know of people whose you know, parents died, they couldn't go, or you know, things along those lines. These were major violations, and we collectively kind of shrugged, our intellectuals collectively kind of shrugged and said, ah, okay. Because mm. you know, because lives were saved. And in fact, lives were not really being saved, you know. But I think that that actually then led to this the size of the protest in Wellington. And I know from our perspective, the day she announced um, the vaccine mandates, after having only 10 days prior, uh, I think it was Chris Hipkins and both herself reiterated that that would not take place. Correct. And to do a complete 180 degree pivot. I mean, I know I, I was devastated. I've talked about this before on another um, show that I have with a friend here. And I, I mean, I broke down and cried. I walked in uh, because I knew what that, that would mean for us and our family and the business that we had. I simply could not believe in this country that that could be done. And more so, what I couldn't believe is how people just went, meh, okay. 
and, and See, barely said anything about it. it, it so this is why I talked about the kind of lies and the hypocrisy, because think about this for a minute. And plus, again, I found it difficult that people wouldn't un, wouldn't kind of, you know, pay attention to this. So whether you agree or not, New Zealand does not mandate any vaccines. New Zealand doesn't have a vaccine mandate for measles, mumps. Most other countries of the world mandate these things, right? So when you mandate other deadly diseases and you mandate COVID, which is not a particularly deadly disease because in recovery rates are very high for COVID, you could possibly justify that saying, okay, we mandate other things. But when you don't mandate things like vac measles vaccines, which kills a lot of children, to say that we are going to mandate a COVID vaccine is deeply problematic, right? Second of all, and I don't need to tell you this, when you have a Bill of Rights which says that people have the right to refuse medical treatment and you mandate a vaccine, you can possibly square that circle, but you have to do something. You can't just say, oh, we are doing this. And I think that's partly, this is another thing we discussed before, that New Zealand didn't seem to have any constitutional protections against this kind of overreach. Mm. Now, once again, I could certainly see you know people saying, yes, this is okay or this is not okay. But there had to be some legal and philosophical justification which just wasn't provided to us. And we were told, you know, they're doing this. You fall in line. If you're not, then you are you know, again. You're a granny killer. You're you know skeptic. You know. And and then of course, um, S nineteen of the Bill of Rights <laughs> says that you have the right not to be discriminated against. I could not understand how that could square with this thing which said that if you were not vaccinated, you would be discriminated against, right? And there's this famous clip of Jacinda Ardern, you know, Derek Cheng of New Zealand Herald asked her that it seems like you're creating a segregated society. And she said, yep, yep, that's exactly what it is. I don't know, maybe she just didn't have any understanding of what it was that she was saying. And, and I, I think I've met Jacinda Ardern many times and I think she's a nice person but not a particularly reflective or deliberative person, I think. And because of that, it was very easy for her. I, I don't know where she was getting her advice from. Maybe these, you know, these, these medical experts. But these things could not coexist together. You could not have a law or, or a Bill of Rights which protects you against discrimination and discrimination. <laughs> You could not, you could, again, as I'm saying, you know, there are ways countries do square some of these circles, but you have to have some, you know, maybe a legal, ethical, philosophical arguments, mm. or at least a back and forth that just wasn't, wasn't the case for us. These things were brought in and we had to fall in line or not. Right. Similarly, you know, I, again, I've written about this. Jacinda Ardern, Chris Hipkins, Labour Party left people on progressives. And I kind of consider myself one of those. We were all in favor. We were very supportive of the Black Lives Matter uh, protests. Right. That was the middle of the pandemic. Right. We said, yes, justified. This is important. In the past, we have we have supported things like Occupy Wall Street. We have always supported various protests. But then our own citizens showed up 
and all of a sudden they were what was it rivers of they brought rivers of filth how can that be i mean and people really aren't that stupid i mean many many are but well, so this show is primarily, I focus a lot on critical social justice and Correct. the ideologies around that, right? And I mean, let's face it, if you once you scratch the surface of it and you start unpicking it, it is full of hypocrisies. It's built on a house of hypocrisy. Correct. So, and that was the one thing I think that I saw is that as a country, we've always had a tremendous amount of trust in our government. Correct. And our government has always stood by its citizens and we've punched above our weight in terms of lack of corruption and making sure that we do the right thing. And so when we had this call to arms with the team of 5 million, that's where I think her ideological roots started to show because we had the strong social contract within its citizenry. And as time wore on, I mean, I'm certainly seeing it now. I saw straight through it right from the get-go only because I was aware of the social justice element. At the beginning, I started seeing it at around that 2016, 2017 mark with the election of Donald Trump. And that, and it was quite funny. You mentioned stolen elections before. Well, see, remember the Democrats were very open about that election being stolen from them with Donald Trump with the use of Cambridge Analytica. So this is nothing new. But the 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 whole ideological to and fro started at that time. So when I started to see once the coalition sort of was settled and you could sort of see little inklings of it through 2017 to 2020, once the pandemic rolled out, I literally said to my husband, I said, oh my gosh, she is rolling out critical social justice in a COVID Trojan horse because you could see the elements of that being pushed through, as you said, the allowing of BLM protests at the height of lockdown, and yet when other um, people like Advanced New Zealand and the like would do anti-lockdown protests, they were shut down and arrested and would go up to court, but no one would intervene with a BLM protest. Yes, correct. So I've I've actually talked a lot about this. So, So one of the chapters in my book is about trust. And I say that this was this whole idea of, you know, MIQ and that we had to imprison people essentially, this is just not right for New Zealand because I I, I was on radio things and I said, let people go home and then say that, look, you know, we expect you to follow these rules. If you don't, we might prosecute you. This is a much more efficacious approach for a country like New Zealand because we are a very high trust society. And and the problem is that some of the people tried to break out mostly because they were being imprisoned. And, and I, I said, think about this. One person tried to break out, that was big news. But thousands and thousands of people came back and they all followed the rule. No one thought that was novel, right? Similarly, I've said this in, in elsewhere that according to our world in data, by sort of 2022, middle of 2022, New Zealand had achieved about 85%, 83% double vaccination. Denmark, another country of 5 million people, which had no vaccine mandates, which essentially appealed to people, had achieved slightly better, about 85% double vaccination. Right. So my point was that was it really worth the amount of social division we created? And I even wrote 
uh, an, an article in the BFD about the fact that I thought the judges were getting it wrong. The judges were applying a wrong lens. They seem to believe that this supposed public health argument outweighed everything else without realizing that when I lose my job, there's a huge cost to me. And those costs need to be factored in, especially given the kind of the demographic age profile of COVID, that people under the age of 50, let's say, who did not have any comorbidities were not really at very high risk of dying, etc. So you you were you had to, it wasn't that you were you had to apply this on a population basis. You had to allow for this age profile. And the judges were ignoring a lot of that. And and some of this I've forgotten. I mean, I'm not saying this well. But I, I wrote about a lot of these things. The other thing that you mentioned, I think it's, and this is also something I've written about and work I'm working on. This when he said critical social justice, it's this idea for a long time, and this is particularly people in the media, people in academia, we talk about kind of right-wing authoritarianism, right? That this is a right-wing characteristic. But that's not true. There is a very strong left-wing counterpart to this. Oh, which is very totalitarian. Which is very totalitarian. Side. And the reason why we talk about this to some extent, there's a bit of history here, is that a lot of this comes from the work of a psychologist, a sociologist called Theodore Adorno, who de developed something called the F scale or the fascism scale, because he was trying to understand, you know, Nazi Germany. But even back then, a gentleman, a, a psychologist called Edward Schills at the University of Chicago pointed out, he said, look, you know, Stalin, people like Stalin, are as totalitarian <laughs> as say Hitler. And so just to say that this kind of authoritarianism is a purely right-wing phenomenon is not right. And so Jacinda Ardern, who you know has been part of the Youth Socialist League for a long time, that that the left wing is and this this is not just cancel culture. This is uh, this is a very totalitarian mindset that if you don't buy my arguments, then you are the enemy. Mm. And one so, of the things that they employ is what I call horizontal policing within the populace. And they deployed that so well. They started by getting everybody brought into the team first. Correct. So we were all on the team of 5 million. And once we were on the team of 5 million, there would be things that they would introduce. And she, how often did she say, we we're operating now on a high trust model? And then the don't talk to your neighbours and creating the snitch line. And so they were fostering and enabling and encouraging the population to police themselves. I was aghast when that happened because I'm thinking, I mean, I'm in my 50s, so I'm old enough to have read and as a child had heard about Eastern Bloc countries. We have friends from Eastern Bloc countries. They were apoplectic about this. They could, they were like, they could not believe that in 2020 New Zealand, they were reliving things that they'd lived in the 1960s and 1970s Eastern Bloc. They were stunned. Yeah, so I, I again, I, I, I don't know. I mean, um, Maybe we are over reading this or, but, you know, um, in, in the communist regimes, you had the Komsomol, the young communists, right? And and they were asked to essentially daub in their own parents if they had anti-communist thoughts. It's, we had something similar to that, right? So your neighbor is doing something, you know, report them to the police and things. I don't know. I mean, 
at the one hand, I kind of think, okay, maybe it wasn't as bad. <laughs> and we are, you know, kind of creating conspiracies where they may not exist. But it was hard to... I think it just showed up the um, malleability of the psyche of of a population and that it actually doesn't take much to nudge a population in one direction or another if the will is there and and the levers that need to be pulled and I because I don't necessarily believe there is a greater conspiracy out there I have correct, great correct. disagreements with my husband over this correct correct, but what, correct. I think Matthias Desmet actually summed it up beautifully in his book The Psychology of Totalitarianism correct where he actually just showed the the levers and mechanisms that can be pulled how it actually surprisingly easy to sway a population to do what it is that you need them to correct, do. Correct, correct. And I found it astounding who, which politician in his or her right mind in this time says that we will act as your single source of truth. Th that was kind of mind-blowing that somebody would actually say that and expect people to kind of abide. And, and we did. We kind of looked at the government as, you know, as the source of truth. When, and that's the other strange thing, right? I mean... For a long time, progressives were kind of anti-establishment. We we questioned authority. <laughs> you know, that was kind of our you know, thing back in the, whatever, 60s, etc. You know, a lot of it was about questioning authority. All of a sudden, we were not questioning authority. And, and that's another thing I've written over and over again about our media. And I said that, look, you need to understand that the media's role should primarily be one of opposition. Right, the government has many ways of getting their message out. You don't have to play along with them. Your role should be primarily to say, "I don't believe you." Mm. But they had fifty-five you million know, reasons. That's exactly, to do that. exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then we came to understand that, but it was it was also quite quite strange to see how compliant the media was and and their refusal to ask any hard questions. So did you see Michael Baker's was in the press again recently, reminding us about this, telling us about this fifth wave correct, that is now correct. coming through and encouraging for boosters. And it's been quite, I've been really interested in looking at the reaction of what I call most sort of normal people, people in the middle who just go along to get along. They want to get back to work and try and rebuild businesses and, and uh, communities and do all of that sort of stuff. For them, COVID is in the rear view mirror. Correct. So then- to have this back out in the news cycle, I don't think it got the splash that our Michael was kind of hoping it might. No, it didn't. But equally, it seems that uh, it seems very strange, right? So because, you know, in the United States and Northern Hemisphere, they're saying this and they're heading into their winter. And here we are saying it when we are heading into our summer. Professor Baker seems really determined to hang on to this COVID <laughs> claim to fame. And... Uh, I'm guessing there's, I think there's a lot of public money involved in various grants and things along these lines. But I do want to say one thing on this uh, for people who are listening. So I think people should should ignore uh, Professor Baker. I don't know about his other research. I cannot speak to that. But what I can say is that I have read some of his writings on COVID, and this is not very well done research. And I also wrote this one column where Professor Baker said that we saved 20,000 lives. I pointed out why that's essentially inaccurate and meaningless. So I think people who really are worried should do the following, right? They should go to their, their GPs and say, you know, they ask, what should I do, right? But more importantly, Please don't stop by asking what I should do. 
ask your GP, what are you doing? Are you getting another shot? Are you advising that to your parents? Are you advising that to your children? Are you advising that to your friends and family? Because asking the GP, what should I do? is different from asking what would you do if you were in my shoes that in involves a very different mindset so for anyone who wants to you know is concerned don't listen to some of the what the experts are saying because some of them may have very strong vested interests don't listen to me but then go to the gp and ask uh, what would you do if you were in my place Mm. Uh, evidence suggests that that elicits a very different response. You know, what are you recommending this for your parents, etc. Right? That's what people should do. Don't listen to you know people in the media. Just go to people who know you best and ask them searching questions. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, don't listen to me. What do I know? I mean, I you know, <laughs> I just I just got into this mostly because you know I was. I was embarrassed by the questions that people were not asking. Well, we've got a new government. Yes. And what advice, if they came to you and they said, Anash, give us some advice in terms of what you think would be prudent for us to do now moving forward for the next, say, first 100 days or first three years to get New Zealand back on track, as Christopher Luxon would say, to move us away from this COVID economic shadow. So the, the problem with this is that it's actually not so easy to wipe the slate clean, right? So this is something I said over and over again that you could not you cannot take the position that we'll deal with COVID first and the fallout later. That's just not going to happen. Now that we have this huge cost of living crisis and things along these lines, it's actually not going to be easy put that genie back in the bottle very quickly. And I know people think that would happen, but it's not, not so easy any, anymore. So what should the government do? I think the first and foremost thing is to convince people about the integrity of our institutions. I mean, let me give you an example. It may not seem like a big thing. But the Reserve Bank of New Zealand has nothing to do with climate change, right? That's not... Not their mandate. That's not their mandate. Racial justice is not their mandate. Their mandate is very narrow, and that's to deal with monetary policy. They should stick to it. So I think the first thing, again, I may be completely biased here, but I think one thing that we have had in the last six years is an extreme politicization of all our institutions. I think the first thing to do would be make sure that our institutions are fair. If there are human rights violations, then we want our Human Rights Commission to speak out on all of those things, not on a selection of those things, right? So I think if we can restore trust in our institutions, it's not, not an easy thing to do, but that might go a long way towards convincing people that, look, you know, the, your government is on your side, right? Well, you're essentially saying that the social contract has been irreparably damaged at this, this point and it needs a bit of TLC, doesn't it? Correct, correct, correct. Now, I think that would be or should be a priority. Then various other things, of course, um, 
I think that creating a separate Maori health authority is is a mistake. There needs to be in a democratic country. There needs to be one health authority for for everyone, right? I mean, that's what a democracy is, right? A democracy is supposed to watch out for the most vulnerable, right? If you need to have separate rules, separate laws for every, you know, various different groups, that's not a democracy anymore, right? Our courts, our laws should work for, they should protect everyone. Some of that, I think, will, again, yes, so broadly speaking, I think the social contract that the, that the rules and laws are working for everyone uh, needs to be revisited. I think at some point, there will have to be a bit of a reckoning. Um, I mean, I, I wrote a column, again, this is probably not the first, I said that Part of the reason why Winston Peters is back in parliament is because he was the only politician who showed up and talked to the protesters. Mm. And the protesters had legitimate grievances. That has to be considered. Uh, we we didn't. I think, I think National and Act would have picked up some more votes if they had been, you know, even if they had said, look, you know, we should have, we didn't. That was a mistake. I think mm. that might have taken some of the votes away from New Zealand first. And you know, they wouldn't have to rely on him so much now. They could have formed a government. Um, well, you, and that was actually one of the questions I had down here. I mean, you talked about why New Zealand, uh, why Labour lost. Right. But who who do you think was actually the big winner of the election? I mean, was it Winston? Was it Te Pāti Māori? Because, of course, they had a tremendous success by being Correct. able to capitalise on candidacy vote Correct. Labour Correct. picked up the party vote. So who who do you believe? Correct. Was I think I think I think when New Zealand first was did win a lot of the disenfranchised uh, vote. That the vote that people instead of voting for someone like Brian Tamaki, etc., they went with New Zealand first. Some of it, some of the dissolution Maori vote went to Te Party Maori. That. Mm. Um, which is concerned Which, from my perspective, I find that quite concerning because unlike the days of Tariana Turia and correct. Peter Sharples, they have now become very much a radical activist party and not a party based around you know a tribal center in terms of needs. And they're looking, they're drawing on a lot of inspiration, let's put it this way, from uh, ideologies offshore. Yes, I was just going to say that, that this Māori party, of course, is a very different party than the one founded by Peter Sharples and Tariana Turia, where they seem to be very much, much more hung up about kind of identity rather than the economic issues. They, they don't seem to say a whole lot about some of the economic problems. So, yes, so I, if I was in, in charge, I would start by doing some of that, then, you know, we need to uh, the the big challenge and it's not not so easy to know what to do and i i have to say that david seymour is the only person who has harped on this a lot is is that our kind of low wages and low productivity this is something you know we really need to address that uh, that we are we are kind of falling far behind australia in in many ways and if that keeps happening, then we are going to lose a lot of people who will go off to Australia. 
I have a business, my the day job, which has a retail component, but we have a manufacturing component. Correct. And manufacturing has been something that has become very heavily regulated in this Correct. country. And then that in turn creates a level of cost, which then applies pressure. And then you're in a situation where you've got a workforce that is at the lower end of the, the pay scale. And so you've got to try and get productivity at a level that that's where your profitability is going to to lie. And it's become increasingly more difficult. And you're not just going to win that by doing, well, I mean, what has it been? Nearly a 45% increase on the minimum wage over the last six years. I mean, it's a a dramatic number. Mm. And all we're certainly seeing is it's like a it's squeezing uh, from from bottom up and top down in terms of compliance. So where do businesses go in terms of innovation, in terms of productivity, in terms of being able to create that number eight wire that correct, mentality correct, that we've always correct, been? What correct. are your thoughts on that? I don't know. These are not questions. I mean, these are not easy to answer questions, but this is certainly something that I think a new government would have to look at that you know how do we increase productivity what are the ways of doing so and there are no um, there are no easy answers in some sense no short answers on that no either, short I answers I, I i mean and if there is i certainly don't i don't know um <laughs> Well, you and I could keep talking, I think, for hours. And I, I, I think in the new year, once we get them established, once they've got their slippers in the in the desk sure, at the Beehive, sure. we will get back together and and see how things are going. But it has been an absolute joy to talk to you. Oh, I've been thank talking you so to much. Thank you. Uh, Professor Anash Chowdhury. This article was November 2nd, Bassett, Brash and Hyde. Where else can people find your writing? What current columns have you got at the moment or about to come out that uh, you'd like so, to highlight? So I, um, you can just search m- uh, Google for my with my name on Anish Chowdhury and I have a web page where I put up all my writings. If people want to read the Nudged into Lockdown book, the book is actually um, it's relatively expensive in New Zealand, but it's available in public libraries. It's also available as an ebook from various outlets. So they're available on Google Books if people want to read it on ebooks.com. And all of this is available on my website, so people can just do a Google search. And and but again, I I want to say that you know I some of these are my opinions. I may be wrong, <laughs> so so don't take my word for everything. You know, listen to other people. It's good to actually get a different point of view and a different perspective to sort of see where we go. So Correct. No, so gonna... I started out by in my book, and the, I don't know if this is true, but uh, my my father um, he he passed away in 2019. So my father always used to tell me this story about Rousseau and Voltaire, and I don't know if this story is true or not. But and the story is that you know Voltaire said of Rousseau that you know uh, I disagree with every single thing you have to say, but I'll fight to my death for your right to say so. So that's been my kind of guiding motto that that I don't have to agree with you or you don't have to agree with me. But at the end of it, you know, if I provided you with some food for thought and, you know, made you think, look at this in a different way, that's all I'm trying to do, you know, uh, you know, playing devil's advocate in some sense and rather than falling in line and and advancing a government narrative. And I always say this, that, you know, I will soon... <laughs> After having written much about uh, against the Labour government, I'll very very soon be writing against the National Act government. In fact, I already have done so. <laughs> One of the, the most recent column in Newsroom, 
is about the changes to university councils driven through by Stephen Joyce back in 2015. And I said that in some of the problems our universities are facing now, including the huge issues at Massey, is partly because uh, you know our vice chancellors don't respond so much to our staff and students anymore because the councils are dominated by political appointees. So that's uh, that's against Stephen well, Joyce. Uh, and as you said before, I mean, part of the role of the media has always been to push back and question. Correct. And if they're correct. not going to do it, I'm so thrilled that you do, are doing it and continue to do so because I love reading your work. Hey, look, it has been such a joy. As I said, thank you so much, Murray. Thank you. You're it's my welcome. pleasure. Professor Anna Stroudry, Auckland University Professor of Experimental Economics. Don't disappear here on Reality Check Radio with Counterculture. There is still much more to come, including Marty is back with Media Matters and the Woke News of the Week. Thank you so much. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the App Store's direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything, from listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. This is Counterculture with Marie. And joining me now is Helen Houghton, leader of the New Conservative Party. Helen, I wanted to get you on uh, because coalition agreement, it's now in, it's inked. You have to be happy with some of the things that have got past the line, particularly around guidelines with REC in schools. I know I have to admit my little heart went bit pitter patter on that. How about you? Marie, it's great to be back on. And yes, I'm buzzing. I'm still buzzing over that the policy announcements, many of them actually, uh, things that you know new conservative have been advocating for but yes especially the rec because you know you know i have been on the show so often talking about that uh you can't get the grin off my face <laughs> absolutely and you know when i heard it i was shocked i was like wow this is christmas present you know the moment of joy then turned to i actually shed some tears because it's been a long battle five years you know i walked out of school to fight this and um gosh don't want to get emotional now but it's yeah, it's um huge, you weren't you know. the only one that shed a wee tear, I have to say, on Friday, Helen. So I'm oh. sure you weren't alone there. Well, yeah, because I think Rodney described it as the landing pad has now been built and it's now time to build the rocket. So for you, I mean, I know that you've got uh, a conference coming up and you'll be looking at the future with 2026 with New Conservative, but for you personally, though, I think part of it, I mean, it's now not time to take your, your pedal off the, the metal. It's you're needing to continue to make sure that that announcement and those policies are enacted. I mean, announcing them is one thing and having them in an agreement is one thing, but actually doing them is something else, isn't it? Absolutely. I agree with you. You know, just before I heard that announcement, I was prepared and ready to send off an open letter to whoever the new education minister is. And I heard that and I'm like, oh, Hallelujah, I don't need to do that. But 
but <laughs> there's still work to be done. Um, you know, we talked last about that school down here in Christchurch who are used as a model school for all teachers and all schools around and how fully embraced they have. So it's going to be still a battle to make sure that we um, advocate for all educators and children and parents who still may be pushing against that in school. But also for me, it is making sure that we remove organisations like Inside Out from any say and input into school policy because that is absolutely abhorrent that they should have any control over other people's children. Um, so, yeah, there's a wee bit more to do, but I do feel like the burden has been um, released from my shoulders. Mm. You know, over the last six months, uh, maybe a little bit longer, there's been a number of other groups and individuals who have started speaking out, and I'm so grateful to all of them. I'm grateful to, you know, New Conservative past before I came on board because that's why I initially joined New Conservative because they were the only party talking about the gender stuff. Um, the likes of Family First, the organisation with Bob McCroskey, they have done so much in this space. So there's many people to thank. Um, and at the end of the day, while I feel like it's a victory for New Conservative and I'm really grateful for those who have stood in that space, it is a victory for our young people, for our children and also for the parents' rights. So, yes, hallelujah and hallelujah. Thank you to the new government because I'm so happy. And, you know, there's a few other things here that, of mm. course, are making us rather happy. It's it's actually really positive, isn't it? It is. And Erica yeah. Stanford seems to be a breath of fresh air. Uh, she yeah. certainly seems to be a lot sharper than the previous education oh, ministers. Gosh. That would be a change. Oh, wouldn't it? It's, um, you know, a little bit <laughs> airy-fairy behaviour in Parliament. And although um, the last one was, you know, a principle, it doesn't, you know, having, having it's interesting, the people I've met over this political journey, you know, having degrees and different, even being in Parliament for a long time doesn't mean that you are, that you're the best person and it doesn't mean that you actually have got common sense, Marie. Mm. My gosh. So, yeah, look, while I can think, Things are looking pretty good. I'm not naive enough to think that the this government are going to be the knight in shine, shining armours, and I still think I have a fair bit to give mm. um, in that space. So yeah, I'll keep keep going. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And the other one too was the COVID inquiry. I mean, how that takes oh. shape. Uh, I mean, even Winston Peters said on Friday, he said, look, you know, we don't quite know whether it'll be an expansion of the existing, you know, they need a little bit more information. But the fact that I know from many of us in this sort of freedom space, the fact that the questions that are going to be asked and discussions been had, which have been stoutly shut down for the past four, three to four years, I think that in itself is a huge relief. Are you feeling that too? I do as well. I mean, uh, I don't have a problem with admitting that I never got a vaccination at all and um, neither did my family. And I saw not only I felt it alongside all of those other people in the freedom movement, but I saw what it did to my adult sons as well. And, you know, what that has done to people. Um, I'm grateful for this new government for doing that. But also hearing things like David Seymour when he talks about the treaty stuff and the unity going forward. And I so am grateful for all three of them, to be honest, for, um, you know, making sure that, yeah, we're looking at uniting the country instead. Of, I cannot believe that this last six years has been the most 
divisive, destructive, and just, you know, damaging of our country. Yeah, and, you know, it's mind-boggling, isn't it, that we've allowed, well, we didn't allow it, but, you know, that that's happened. And so that's another reason we don't take the foot off the pedal for as long as it, look, the short, the short answer is as long as we have got <laughs> communists, uh, as well as the Labour, radical Labour and Green MPs, we still need a Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so there you go. This is the thing. It means that it gives energy, I think, as well for the likes of – because all those smaller parties popped up at the last election and a lot of those mushroomed from mm. the protest in Wellington. We know that. That's the difference, I think, with New Conservative versus a number of those other parties. You guys have been there through thick and thin. You you regroup, and there is actually yes. a place now for you to continue to be supportive where you need to be supportive, be that little flea in, in the ear or the voice on the shoulder saying, hey, 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 you agreed on mm. this. Let's make mm. sure this happens. So that must be nice and refreshing for you once you get through your um, AGM and your, your post uh, election debrief yourself as a party to know that you've got work still to do in the space for the next three years and so it's not a sit back and go <laughs> you know it's uh, you you can't you can't sort of let up so that must that must be exciting for you as well to actually do something in a positive space as opposed to always in a negative one it is I mean we were all deflated you know with the lower votes at the end of the day but I I didn't stay down there for long because like you said there's still work to do and um, you know the people who are possibly wanting to give up a negative well that's fine they can go and you know sit on their couch and let the rest of us carry on and I think I'll replay some of what you just said at our AGM because it's important that everybody does realise that, yes, we are one of the parties that is a significant player and, you know, many of those other tinier parties that that jumped in there, you know, the celebrity politicians or the ex-MPs who thought they were going to be the knight in shining armour, you know, some of them are great people, don't get me wrong, but a lot of that, like you said, not only did some of it come out of the freedom thing, I mean, a lot of it was it's more around you know, interest groups and, and movements, which you do need. Like during the all the protests after the COVID stuff, I'm I was actually excited and happy to see New Zealanders finally standing up for something. And it's great to see now how many movements that we have out there. And you need that. You need the movements and the interest groups. But don't get me wrong, they cannot turn into political parties. And that's what they've tried to do. Mm. You know, um, they will influence political parties, which is really an important role. But some of them have kind of crossed over and thought, you know, if they jump in and be the leader or whatever, it's like, well, why don't you actually get behind the ones who are established, Marie, like you said, new conservative? And, well, then that's you know. my next question. I mean, I know that, for example, I mean, is there the Women's Rights Party. I mean, you've got lots of commonality there. You've you've worked with them before. I mean, I mean, mm. there's them, there's the animal rights, there's... There must be a way for you guys all to work, whether it be in an umbrella situation or coalesce mm. together. So then that way that fractionation ends, surely. Yeah, like I said, I think we will need to, um, yeah, we must have some more discussions. I just hope, like I said to you in one of our interviews recently, there were a number of us women leaders at the rally and mm. we all come from different political beliefs in that, yet we were able to lay that down and 
Yeah, there were no egos and no, um, you know, we all spoke and it wasn't about trying to compete with each other. It was to do the right thing for, uh, you know, our people. So so that's what I'm hoping. Look, you know, I'm not going to get into gender here because that, I'd love to talk to you more about that another time. But, you know, being the only female on the board of New Conservative over the last three years has been interesting. But uh, also being the leader of a Conservative Party, you can imagine I've, there's been some interesting things there. But, um, yeah, look, I just hope that the male leaders out there with, um, you know, those other smaller parties actually do seriously lay down some of the thinking around that they have to be the one and mm. um, be able to come together and work better with, yeah. yeah we, we were prepared to work with many of them, but some just wanted to um, demolish the rest of the parties and all come under them, and that's not how you work together. No. So, no. Well, we will continue to talk in the new year. I know that for a fact. There's still so much work to do. Uh, yeah. This has been Helen Outen, the leader of the New Conservative Party. Thanks for your time again this morning, Helen. I greatly appreciate it. Wonderful, Marie. You having a fantastic Christmas break? Oh, I will. I'm going to. I'm having an extended break, Helen. I'm very excited. Good. Thanks, Marie. Thank you. You're with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. Joining me now is the lovely Liz. I'm so excited. This is Liz from Inbox, and many of you may have actually communicated with Liz. She has got such a huge job, Liz. I don't know how you do it. Good morning. Good morning, Marie. How are you? Good. I don't know how you get through all of that uh, communication. There is so much that comes in. <laughs> I worry myself, wonder myself sometimes, to be honest. Yeah, no, it's, oh. it's um, a big job at times. Oh, I'll say, I'll say. And usually I'm fairly sort of st steady with the communications, but then this last week with Frida and we did have a feeling we'd get lots of communication, yep. <laughs> in, which is why I wanted to get you along because I thought we could read out uh, the feedback that we got with our interview with Frida Wallace. If you didn't hear it, Frida is a trans uh, radical activist from Manchester that I interviewed last week. There was a, quite a few questions in there and I thought we'll get Liz to read it all out and then we'll just have a bit of a chat around it that may actually explain the direction that I took when I went to, to speak with her. So what did you get on the board, Miss Ford, Liz? Well, we had one here from Anonymous saying, thanks for sharing the other side again, Marie. A reasonable person make, making the trans arguments. It still had the ring of left-wing talking points. She definitely glossed over examples of the extremist trans movement and their funding while trying to play up the right bogeyman trope. People do get in trouble for not using pronouns. Her attempt to make out there is nothing to see here. It's not really being weaponized. It's all soft and light and people being themselves while the right fabricates scare stories. Imagine a person on the left admitting no knowledge of our media, saying that the media here reportedly correct, reported correctly. We have another one here from Anonymous. Um, someone tell this person about ESGs, which are bribes to push trans agenda for population control. And Keith adds, heard of, us, heard of pushback RCR? So drag queen over sexualization stories to children is okay. So there is no contagion with school kids. So the watering down of marriage has no adverse effects. So libraries don't have pornographic books in primary schools. And I'm accused of not listening. I'm truly trying to understand. We've got another anonymous. 
so your guest dismissed women getting hit over the head at Posey Parker. I was there, as you can't believe footage, and then says Nazis were in Australia. Pure gaslighting. Stop this woman pulling down Posey. How misogynistic. I'm baffled. So Posey only goes to Western nations. I wonder why. Maybe Islam isn't so receptive. So Beth adds at the end of your interview, great song choice following Frida's interview, Marie. Wow, that was an eye-opener. Love to you and Marty from a fan. And then we have um, another anonymous. Hi there, Marie. I'm currently listening to your interview with Frida from the UK. I have a very open mind and I listen with objectivity always. But I do think she is mostly indoctrinated and cannot see that as part of the trans community, she herself is being played. I think the question should have been put to her on what she thinks of drag queen story hour and drag queens performing in front of small children in a provocative fashion. Since, after all, she was the one to bring the defence of drag queens into the conversation. And Nick adds, Hi Marie, I normally really enjoy your content, but this morning I was disappointed that you didn't call Frida out about protecting young children. Another anonymous, why are trans people always playing the victim? And another anonymous, regarding what your guest this morning said about Posey Parker in Melbourne and that it was refreshing to see the media reporting on neo-Nazis being there, they weren't there to support Posey. So for the media to make out that they were is dishonest. Arvi Yemeni covered this. Even if he's right-leaning, he's more honest. I don't totally agree with Posey, but she has the right to speak. It would be nice if we actually had honesty in mainstream media. And finally, we have one on Facebook from Emma. Emma goes on to say, Frida was well-spoken and clearly has her finger on the pulse of the trans topic. So it's good to hear her perspective for some balance. What I find fascinating is that some of the things Frida spoke about was the inverse, yet the same to the worries that the counter-argument have, that being people are getting hurt by what others say to them, actions such as being spat on, likewise as happened at Posey Parker event, wanting to get on with their lives, yet forced into conversations, etc. Things like toilet spaces, sports, sex education, school, etc. How I see it is that these conversations should have been had at a local and central government level and addressed. Toilet spaces are easily remedied with a third space, as there are for those physically disabled. Sports simply needs two categories added. However, sex ed needs to be left well alone. Children allowed to be children. And as older teenagers, when they're emotionally better equipped, they can ask these questions when and if they're ready to explore them in their own time, at their own pace, as it has always been for the majority of children. So, yeah, we had quite a bit of pushback. We did. We did have a, well, yes and yes and no. It's been great. I loved all of this feedback, which is why I wanted Liz to come on so we could have a chat about it and give you guys a little bit more context in terms of the interview with Frida, because Frida contacted us to come on and she had heard some of the other content that I'd done on this issue and obviously did not agree with it. Now, one thing that you may or may not know when I go to do these interviews is I spend a lot of time in research on the person, who they are, what their approach is, what their interests are. So I don't go into these interviews cold. Interviewers do it different ways. Some interviewers prefer to do it that way. I know Rodney has a real love of going in. He loves to be the sort of 
man on the mm-hmm. street and, and just having a cold conversation. And uh, for him, he really enjoys that. And he gets this really, there's this almost sense of wonder and awe when he does that because mm-hmm. he learns things as he goes. Whereas yeah. for me, I can't do that. And particularly when I had Frida contact us and the reason why she wanted to come on the show and she wanted to address some of the things in previous interviews that I'd had. In the research that I'd done, I had seen that she's not a shrink and violet at all. And I think I said with Marty, she can be quite prickly, which of course our Marty had to make a joke of because that's how our Marty rolls. (laughs) Yeah, and and that's the thing, you know. My you guys may have noticed that my style with the show is to get, is to have conversations with people, and so first and foremost with Frida is that I wanted to afford Frida the same courtesy that I afford every other guest, which is the ability to come on, have a conversation, and be able to speak. Yeah, and I think you are totally respectful of that. Yeah, and I have to admit. It, there were times, and I did have to push back on a couple of things that were just blatantly wrong. And I think the mosque shooting was one of them. Uh, yeah. The neo-Nazis that were brought up in here, I did say, hey, look, they weren't there for her. And nice. also around some of the stuff with the footage, because I'd spoken to Simon Anderson, I've spoken to the likes of Helen Houghton, who were there, and Karina Shields, who were there. So, you know, Frida was applying a lens to that event based on the sanitised footage she'd seen yeah. plus a conversation with Ali Rabashkin. Yeah. So there's no point, and I did not, and I've seen her do this on in other interviews, I didn't want to get to a point where the interview denigrated, where it became that sort of bombastic gotcha moment. I'm not like another interviewer yeah. on another radio station. It's just no. not who I am. So no. One of the things I do love about our listeners and what you guys have proven to me again and again and again is how well-informed you are, how you do actually listen, how you do do your own information and your own research. So my goal was to allow Frida to put out her point of view and allow you guys to make up your own minds. Yeah. Um, and I think I think that you guys have have done that. And from this feedback too, you know, I mean, look, I agree with pretty much most of you know a lot of those things that you've said. But again, Frederick was and she did actually point this out that she was speaking primarily from her experience, and she actually does fall foul because she's not as radical, I think, as some of the trans radical activists would like it to be. Mm-hmm. She's not. You know, it takes all stripes, and I have to admit, she she. He misgendered Dylan Mulvaney, which honestly, oh, that I was just, classic. It was really funny, and it just goes to show. It just goes to show that it, yeah. you know, anyone can do it. Yeah, anyone can do oh, it. So I do appreciate that Frida done that. And so if I do ever get anybody again that uh, sits on an opposing side of a narrative that we often will cover, or I often cover here with counterculture, that will generally be the approach that I take because this is their story to tell. Not mine. So what do you think about that, Liz? Does that kind of make sense for people, do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, you've covered it off well there. Yeah, and I loved loved what Emma said here too, the the final one, when she was talking about all of those different things that were some of the things were the inverse. I certainly noticed that as well. And, you know, it's about what I do appreciate is the fact that, and I spoke to Frida 
for, I mean, what that interview was an hour long and we yeah, had a little yeah. bit of time at the beginning and the end. And we actually had a good productive conversation. It didn't disintegrate. It didn't. No. I would interview Frida again. Yeah. That's generally my mark of it. You know what? I think we need to, I think that's, it was, I, I won't lie. I was shitting bricks. Seriously. <laughs> because I really did not want her to, to go all feral on me. And because that's yeah. not fun. It's not fun for her and it's certainly not fun for me and it's not fun for the listeners. Well, it might be for no. some, but it's certainly not no, for me. No, I agree. And she didn't. So, yeah. So I just want to thank everybody, everybody, all the anoms. It's okay. Yeah. Um, because I good on you for letting us know that because it does give me a direction of where you guys, our listeners are at. And you are yeah. at where I think you're at. But if you wondered why that's the direction I went down, that's uh, that's why I do it. So yeah. I'm never going to do a big pushy back type bombastic sort of uh, Hoskins sort of Plunkett style interview because that's just that's just not who I am. It's not you, no. No. <laughs> no. no. And what did Marty call me the other day? I'm a kitten. So it's, you know. <laughs> or oh, did I call her a kitten? I can't remember. Poor old Marty. He's coming up. He's it's coming up in a minute. Bless his heart. Oh, uh, I love his voice, Marie. <laughs> he actually um for the listeners, he, we had the um on Sunday night we had the Foundation Club members Zoom and Marty joined us for the first time. Oh, and yes. lots of people hadn't actually seen Marty because they may not have seen his photograph on the blog. No. Yeah. We saw the face and the voice in action together. It was good. Yeah. Yeah, people just loved it. They were like, ah, that's what Marty looks like. It was so funny. See, I've known yeah. Marty for 40 years. So for me, it's, um, I'm like, yeah. oh, really? <laughs> it's trash. <laughs> no, no, he's got a lovely voice. Uh, so I it's what it's, and I think that. one there was another piece of uh, feedback that um that we got I can't remember that was on that Zoom or somewhere else they said that um listening to us was like listening to dinner time conversation and oh uh, yes yeah yeah it, so, yeah it does it's it's very very relaxed and yeah very natural just well I think that yeah well. com- it comes from knowing somebody really yeah well, yeah so yeah no it's um I really enjoy media matters. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, we've got lots to talk about this week. So, and I'm not, and I'm not just saying that. <laughs> I really, genuinely, you know, love love what you do there. Yeah, well, we just try and um, look at it from a slightly different perspective, and uh, we've got plenty to talk about. Oh my gosh, we've got so oh, much. Gosh. Obviously, di- um, our sort of dive into the coalition negotiation and what was decided, and both of us honestly have been touching base since Friday. We're still, I'm still in a state of shock to be honest yeah I had a few tears I'll have to say yeah it was emotional and even in listening on Sunday to the replay that went out um but I heard Bodney's replay again with Tane and you know there was just a certain point and I just thought I just felt really emotional I just had goosebumps and yeah 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 I didn't really expect I mean I, I sort of feel that the election itself the actual closing you know the night was actually quite an anti-climax when it came to it and this really now is the point at which we can start celebrating we've just been in a limbo for the Mm. last you know six weeks or so so it's really nice to just have yeah something now to look forward to hopefully and and it's also optimism for the first time in four years I'm feeling really optimistic and isn't that a nice place to be yeah I think that's a good word actually yeah 
Yeah. So if you've got any feedback, of course, inbox at realitycheck.radio. And the lovely Liz here is the lady on the other side of the keyboard in 2057 is the text number. And she loves it. Let's keep her drowned in work. Uh, Keep keep you busy, (laughs) Liz. (laughs) so do make sure you do that we just absolutely adore it and thank you this morning for um having some time with me and just you know going through this feedback particularly for the breeder interview i've got i'll read out with marty a little later on from some of the other stuff that i've got but uh yeah thank you so much liz i do appreciate it well thank you invite me along marie it's been my pleasure oh it's been wonderful as i said marty's up here next on counterculture I want to give a huge thanks to the lovely Liz. She works tirelessly to receive and collate all your feedback across all the shows and hosts and make sure that you get the information requested and your questions answered. Honestly, we'd be lost without her. To leave us your feedback, just text us at 2057 or email us to inbox at realitycheck.radio. Are you heading away on a road trip this summer? Well, remember, you can take RCR wherever you go with our new app. Download your favourite interviews or play as you go and listen to our live content. I recently had a full day on the road and it was great to catch up on all the incredible content I missed when I'm at work or play. The app is available at the Play Store for Android or the App Store iOS for Apple. Before I catch up with Marty, here's the remainder of the feedback from last week's show. From the Catherine Truscott interview, how brave your guest is honouring others by not breaking his word and considering his choices on family. Why then do we put up with encouraging children to trans? I thought there was a law against conversion therapy. Keith, well, that is so true, Keith, but it appears that that barn door only swings one way. And then, of course, I had that fantastic interview with Javen and Nardo from Young Vision. Hi Marie, I just wanted to share my daughter has been going through university and has graduated with a BA in sociology. She was initially so excited about sociology and in particular women's rights, but found it had been totally hijacked by trans ideology. What is maybe less well known is that she has been totally cancelled when trying to discuss racism that she personally has been subjected to, including physical attacks, but was told in no uncertain terms that if she made any reference to it, she would fail her papers. This is because she is Pākehā. She has been told that racism only exists in one direction. In other words, according to the current university dogma, white people can only be the instigators of racism, not the victims. It's never discussed in this country. I've personally experienced it in the 1970s, and so have both my children, including verbal and physical attacks, just for being the wrong colour, i.e. white. Maybe a subject for RCR, and that's from a non. What you have just described is classic, what they call critical race theory. I have been looking for somebody. I, I have the perfect person that I know that I want to talk to about this. It has just been trying to pin them down for a time to discuss it. But yes, I definitely do want to look at critical race theory. A lot of our policies actually within government has been using critical race theory as its underlying baseline tenet. And we've just applied a Māori slash Aotearoa type spin on it, as it were. But it is all around power dynamics. And ultimately, within critical race theory, if you are white, you're an oppressor. And if you're non-white, you're the oppressed. That's actually at the absolute nub and core. So yes, I totally agree with you. It is a good topic. And it is one that I'm very keen to pursue uh, moving forward here in 2024 with counterculture. 
So thank you for all that feedback. As I said again, 2057 is the text and inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. You are with Counterculture here with Marie. And of course, as we do this morning, every Wednesday morning, it is time for Media Matters with Marty. Good morning. Good morning, Marty. How are you? I'm good, Marie. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. You and I got together on the weekend on Sunday night for the Foundation Members Zoom. That was a bit of fun. It was awesome, wasn't it? Yeah, everybody loved to see the Marty in real life. It was about <laughs> in Zoomy real life. They thought you looked yeah. young. Oh, that Foundation Club member club, I guess, is, is awesome. You know, I'd say to people who are listening, if, if you want to do anything to support us, that's that's a great place to start. Yeah. And uh, I guess we're all feeling flush with the coalition yeah. uh, being formed this week that we might have played some small role in, in some of those things on the table. And it's a great way for people to be a part of that. And, and also the work starts now, doesn't it? Oh, it does. It does. So we had about 700 people. Uh, it was actually just clicked over. I saw it click over 700 uh, on I Sunday. See numbers with as many as that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, well. and Natalie Cutwell, she was emceeing and it was great, but it was so good. You're right. Rodney, it was so good to yeah. sort of get. Rodney was, st- I think, I don't think his feet have touched the ground yet. I really don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, did you hear a show where he said, I wanted to take the coalition agreement to bed and cuddle it? <laughs> I know. And that disbelief, I don't know how you're feeling. I've got a lightness that I have not felt in six years. Yeah. But also, I've got a real feeling of the importance of not continuing to be divided. And it it really, I mean, we'll get into what's in the papers. There's a fair bit of that. Yeah. The sky is falling. We've just got to ignore that and reach out to people Mm. and just refuse to be drawn into it. Yeah, and I think I mentioned it on Sunday too. You you know, there will be, I think as things progress and some things come out, because let's face it, the adherent censorship that has happened for the last six years, that overlordish type pressure from above has now been relieved somewhat. And I think that there will be a number of people that will have their eyes opened. And I think for those of us that are a little bit more awake to things, we have to have a sense of compassion and grace around yeah, accepting always. those people into those ideas and saying, hey, look, it's you look, it's we all get it wrong. Yeah. And you're just and I've as noticed much. quite a change in tone mm. in in journalists already. Yes. I mean, you know, the one we both saw was Fran O'Sullivan, wasn't it? And and I think we both had the same reaction to that. It reminded us of that Simpsons episode where the news reporter Kent Brockman thinks that Springfield's being taken over by aliens and says, I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords. That was the kind of vibe I got, got off. Oh, totally, Brand. particularly when the headline, so this is Fran O'Sullivan from Saturday's Weekend Herald, radical or conservative, new government is both, but it was the opening paragraph, the vast ideological cloud which has permeated New Zealand politics and shrouded free speech for far too long has finally been punctured. And with it, your total silence on it, Fran. Yeah, I was just going to say, oh, have you finally found your whole punch, Fran? Yeah. Oh, good grief. Yeah, Yeah. and talking about they've confronted head-on the national anxiety over co-governance, the emergence of a dual society, 
and the ideology that has crept into education at the expense of ensuring our kids leave school with the competencies that will enable them to confront the, a challenging world. Yeah, too little, too late, Fran. Oh, I know. And the other one I love too is Luxon had to put up with a great deal of sour bagging from members of the commentariat since the election, some with vested interests from their own prior tussles with the political arena. Talk about st- overstating the obvious, you know, I mean, anywho. Yeah. It was nice to see Fran write some comedy for a change. It was good. It was a nice change of pace. She'll be talking about the WEF and the effect of having two WEF young global leaders on the uh, running of a country before you know it. Even if it is discussing its aftermath rather than the implications and ethics of it at the time, you know. You know how you get, if you were in Brownies and Scouts, not that I ever was, if you do certain achievements, they give you badges, badges of honour. I almost feel like we need to create our own media matters Badges like the WEF badge and the cancel culture badge to give to all of these writers and opinion piece holders to sort of say, oh, you've you've earned your WEF badge. Yeah, well, I've often said we should probably uh, establish a parallel New Zealander of the Year award because the New Zealander of the Year and the uh, the recognitions went to people who we just uh, often have seen doing all sorts of reprehensible things to our democracy and the health of our nation. Ashley Bloomfield moving on to try and do the thing to the world, along with Jacinda Ardern, you know, trying to stop people uh, having free speech in the world. <laughs> Oh, I know. So the nice thing is, is that there has definitely been that shift. And let's have a look at some of the positions and policies that may not have necessarily gotten covered, because there are actually a lot of little smaller things there that may have gotten overlooked. And uh, so other things like climate change stays out of outside of cabinet. I mean, James Shaw had it outside of cabinet, but environment also moves outside as well. You can see corporate Luxon came out. I think, with this negotiation and the makeup. It's the first time you've ever seen coalition partners receive so much, I'm going to use the word, careful, you ready? Equity (laughs) within within a group. He's gone and pulled all these people, pulled Peters and New Zealand First and David Seymour and ACT together to create a group to work together to move forward. And I think there has definitely been that theme. They obviously had discussed that at length during the negotiations that, okay, and I see more even said it, I think, was it in Q&A or The Nation, it was one of them. He even said, look, we were fierce opponents on the campaign trail, but we're off it now, and it's now time to to move forward. Well, he's also said that uh, the respect that he had that they had for each other had grown over the process, which was a, a smart thing to say. I think the, the good thing, and, and this is where the coalition agreement and, and the, the noise from it so far has been better than I dared hope for, is my fear was we were going to get a corporate kind of amoral governance. I think we've got in both Peters and Seymour essentially a, a board of morals. So it's it's giving Luxon the ability to exercise that management while constraining it within a set of values that's often missing from the corporate world in all but the most grotesque virtue signaling. Yeah. And it's still yeah. a bit of that, you know, you've still got that fixation, as he described it on, on climate change. But the signal that we're going to prioritize energy, resilience, 
is is welcome. It's, All these people gluing themselves to the roads, yeah, you know, just obtusely yeah. ignoring how dependent we are. I mean, it will be interesting to see how they go around that because Marsden Point is privately owned. It's the private owners of Marsden Point that decided to mothball it. So. How are they going to do like a Rio Tinto type it's arrangement? Like a Kiwi Rail thing, right? Yeah, or a Kiwi, or are they going to privatise it and bring it into the Crown fold? I mean, how they do that, I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether they've got the money to do the latter, but that will be very, very intriguing to see how they do it. Because I know with TY Point, and I think Andrea of Arts actually did a really good, interesting yeah. article on TY Point and around the negotiations and the toing and froing between the previous government and TY Point to actually keep that going. And and Rio Tinto, who own the smelter, who have done a lot of hardballing with the governments in terms of giving them breaks to keep the smelter open. Because let's face it, we're at the arse end of the world. We're at the arse end of their supply chain. It's not really in their best interests to keep it going. So, that, you know, they do apply pressure. Those are all the sort of little finer points that they have to work out, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's that thing that was similar to the Lord of the Rings, where it's an easy way of framing it. And the left always frames tax breaks as giving money to, to the rich rather than just not stealing as much. And where the government's going to be really aware of our vulnerability is in our balance of payments deficit. So, you know, whether or not you don't get as much money for the power as you might have. And Andrea Vance said means that each New Zealand household has to pay an extra $200 a year. I doubt that figure if you if you line it up next to what happens if it just closes down. I don't think we're going to save $200 a year on power because there's not the means to transmit it. Yeah, just like how they framed uh, tax breaks for Lord of the Rings as corporate welfare, there's all sorts of benefits to New Zealand of having something to export in, in terms of, and that's before you even look at the 700 or so people employed mm. uh, at uh, TY Point. Yeah, exactly. And also that entire region too. You know, I mean, you and I are both from, you know, we're both from the same area. And gosh, I remember when the freezing works closed down in Gisborne, the big one before they opened the smaller one they've got now. I mean, and even, you know, when they were looking at potentially closing in Wairoa, I mean, that has a massive impact a massive impact on those communities. And so to be able to keep those places open, it's the beating heart often of a community. So it's important, yeah. you know, it's more than just the sum of its bricks and mortar. Looking at the new cabinet, I mean, there's, you know, not a huge number of surprises. We knew Nicola Willis would get finance. Chris Bishop, Housing Infrastructure, RMA Reform, Sports and Rec, so he'll be happy with that. He's a rugby man. Uh, Shane Retty, did you hear Shane Retty yesterday uh, with Hoskins? Uh, on some of the health reform. No. He was great. You know, he talked, He look, one of the things I loved is he said, look, we need to steer the ship and, and we need to keep, we need to settle things down a little bit. And he said, as much as I want to go in and change things, there has to be a little bit of period of stability there for the current workforce that is there. They can't cope with any more change. They've had so much change with this previous government. We just need to, to get our plans in place and actually bring them on board. 
you know, like measuring the effectiveness of what you're doing for a start. Yeah, exactly. And then he also talked about how it was so lovely to have their families and everything at Government House for the swearing in. And then as soon as the swearing in was done in the press conference, he said, oh, I, I had to leave them though. We had to go. We were straight into meetings and getting this started. Stop it. Instead yeah. of, you know, the drinky poos and the and what have you that would have probably have carried on if it were the other other crew. So anyway, I say, so Reti was there. Uh, Simeon with Energy, Local Government and Transport. Erica, your lovely Erica Stanford, I know you're fond. Uh, um, education, immigration. Do you know the one that really made me happy? Judith Collins. I've always liked Judith Collins. I think me she blinked too. at the last minute and was pragmatic rather than conviction focused. I, I've spoken with, I spoke with a woman who was high up in corrections and she was saying Damien O'Connor was a nightmare to work for, just an awful, rude guy who'd just chuck his staff under the bus. By way of contrast, Judith Collins just absolutely on top of detail, back to staff, set high standards. I've always remembered that. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, Mitchell's got corrections this time round, but of course, Judith Collins, uh, Attorney General, Defence, Digitising Government, GCSB and uh, the Secret Service, Science and Innovation... <gasps> She is the Minister of Space. Uh, she's also the lead coordination minister for the response for the Royal Commission with the terrorist attacks in Christchurch. I'm just so pleased because it just because she is also one of the country's most effective electoral MPs. As you said, she just she gets on with the job, and I think that's really one of the themes for this government is actually getting onto the job, isn't it? Yeah, it's a big mess to clean up, and and we're hamstrung by that extra hundred billion dollars of debt. You know, that, that's we're not getting away from that, uh, not without a reset. <laughs> and I think that's uh, you know that's what we have to understand is on the table. If we can't, we've got to work work that out, and we've got to start talking about it. these guys have allowed by these guys. I mean, the people who print the money, the bankers, the IMF the uh, Bank of International Settlements, all of those shady organisations you never hear too much about have allowed all this toilet paper money to get printed. And it's no accident that we've got $100 billion of debt, but precious little to show for it. I don't know how you spend $100 billion without having a few more buildings, but there we are. So Derek Chen gave his usual dry as a week bix without any milk overview (laughs) of... Uh, what was going it's on? Funny because it's true. <laughs> but then you flicked over the page. Then I flicked over the page. So once I sort of had my wheat bits for Derek, I uh, then the baubles of office median wage looks like small change. And then you have oh David Fisher, comrade. Honestly, yeah. the entire article was. The first paragraph sums it up, and I'm going to read the first paragraph. Now that Christopher Luxon is set to be sworn in as Prime Minister, his weekly pay packet will jump to $9,058.63 before tax. That's a healthy bump from the pre-tax $5,692.44 that he picked up as leader of the opposition. Either pay packet is a substantial hike from the New Zealand medium wage of $1,186.40 before tax. That works out annually as at $471,049 plus $22,606 for expenses for Luxon. Whoop-de-doo. However, it's a long way from Luxon's annual wage salary of $4.2 million when he was chief executive of New Zealand. So he's taken a job that pays him only 10% of what his chief executive job was. Really? They don't do it for the money, hun? 
Yeah, it always reminds me of Bob Jones when when he said, well, you know, the thing about journalists generally is they're not paid very much money. And so, you know, to them, any sort of salary seems like it's terribly high. But in the context of things, you know, it's it's small change, really, or something to that effect. Yeah, that sounds like uh, something he would say. Again, it's like, well, what about the hundred billion dollars, David? You know, yeah. what yeah. what about that? If if these guys can manage not to, I mean, not only not to rack up a hundred billion dollars in six years of debt for which they've achieved precious little beyond what you'd expect to achieve for mm. spending a hundred billion dollars at the very least, uh, but they have to get it down. So whereas Squealer Robertson had the country on meth of inflationary debt. These guys have got to not only not have that, and I'll get to this in a, in a while because I've, I've written a few points down that I wanted to cover, but, yeah, they've got to trim it back. They so, do. Well, the, the entire article was dedicated to how much these MPs are being paid and are they out of touch are they out of touch with what normal New Zealanders paid? Now, you know what? I would have respected that article more if you'd actually taken the time to offset it and balance it with what the 50% of journalists that left journalism under the six years of the Labor government and went to work in the public sector for better conditions and more money. Swillier trough. And then we'll have the conversation, David. Because right. that's where most of them went. I mean, what was the number? It was something like it was a it was in triple figures for Waka Kotahi alone. Again, you've got to get back to that wonderful study that Dave Farrar carried out on uh, how left-leaning New Zealand journalists were relative to the rest of the country. Far, far more likely to describe themselves as hard left by a factor of something like seven or eight times more likely. On the whole about that more left. So, again, I mean, it's nice to see them hopping around a bit and they know that they've got a tiger by the tail in terms of Winston Peters being now a leader in a coalition government. And hasn't he uh, sent a very clear message to our media classes, to our well, media classes? Yeah. He knows that it's going to play to the majority of New Zealanders who have had to read all this Marxist horse shit and see it be taught to children as if it's fact and if it's kind and if it's right. Yeah, Winston is uh, very good at uh, reading the wind and he, he knows mm. that uh, the media are on a hiding to nothing if they come after him too hard. Yeah, well, he's fired the shots now in, in a couple of press conferences. I mean, the nice thing about Winston too is that he's someone who he doesn't care. He doesn't care what they say about him in the sense that he they can take as many shots as he as they like. And in a way, he can almost be a deflector shield for Luxon and Seymour. I have a theory in terms of what we're going to see in the media in the next little bit. And this is what yeah. I want everyone to get prepared with and strap on if you ever dive, dive into legacy media and, and have a wee look. And I think I we might do need to... So you don't have to. Yes, exactly. And I might even set up a scorecard on this. What we're going to see is a lot more Māori are being disadvantaged and that entire equity conversation, particularly around Māori and Pacifica, is going to increase yeah. exponentially. You can see some sad stories about um, really promising programs that got scrapped as a result of this. Exactly. Those, those hardship stories, we're going to see them come thick and fast because we didn't 
Didn't see a lot of those hardship stories the last six years. Yeah, there were suddenly going to be families living in cars. We're happily in motels before, I don't know. Yeah, so we're going to see a lot of those hardship stories as if they've just materialised since the new government arrived. So you're going to see a lot more of those. You're going to see yeah, lots more stories around the disadvantage and the inequitable treatment of Māori and Pacifica. So those are two things. The other thing that you're going to see too is you're going to see a lot more climate hysteria. They're going to really grasp onto that and they'll anything that's going to look like i mean gosh the wind will even change direction anything they're going to pull in that sort of climate hysteria and then the last thing that they'll do is anything that is pro business or positive for business anything that's going to try and increase that productivity to pull down that balance of payments and squeeze it you know get it back into a manageable level will be seen as evil and they will try and unpick it however which way that they can. And the first thing that they latched onto, of course, was the uh, smoke-free legislation. And Nicola Willis, that was her first sort of test. They they gave her a little bit of a push on that. And that was, I think, was it Tame or one of them uh, on those weekend shows? Well, she was good on that, wasn't she? She was really good. She was really solid on that. And it's smoking is an interesting one. I mean, I, I've never smoked. I've always been an avid anti-smoker, but I'm also at the same token. The last tranche of that legislation, which was reducing the nicotine in cigarettes then, and also too creating a ban, an age ban that no one under the age of, I think, was it 35 or whatever it was, if you were born before a certain date, couldn't go in and buy cigarettes. Who in their right mind was going to try and police that, really? Police grown-ups, you know, I mean, it's just, it was so ridiculous and it's completely and at the, the reality of it is is the smoking in terms of smoking socially is not as acceptable as it once was it is now up to those individuals to make those decisions and the and again here I, I was stunned to hear I think it was a Pacifica leader saying how dreadful this was this was going to ex, to affect Pacifica and Maori and it's like so what are you what you're wanting to do is actually have this oppressive law over those people because they don't have the ability to make good decisions for themselves, so you have to make it for them? Really? Mm. Really? Actually treat them with some respect and dignity and maybe bring them along on the journey. That could be a good way to start of helping reduce those numbers instead of just being the fist clamping down, the hammer clamping down on the population. I I thought Willis actually handled that that quite well. But Mm. that's the starting. That's the start. It's the beginning. It's going to be interesting. By interesting, I mean painful. <laughs> and, and there are some people who are still in the pay, paper who who are, I mean, Mike Munro. And I was saying to you before uh, we started, when I'm seeing Chris Hipkins on TV, when I'm seeing those olean apparent chicks like Mike Munro, when I see them and I hear them, I just think, just go away, although those aren't the words I used. Yeah, he's just just willing on discord. So he's describing the coalition. It will be led by a gung-ho prime minister who promises to get cracking and deliver out, deliver outcomes, having not yet learned the under-promise, over-deliver mode of operation. And there's a guy who was a former chief of staff for J- Jacinda Ardern. He's just saying it without irony. He was the king of over-promise, under-deliver. What maybe he isn't factoring in is that if you're not just a Marxist student politician, you might be capable of some delivery. Careful, because 
they're going to have to change the yardstick from actually delivery and outcome as opposed to what was spent. <gasps> yeah. Mike Munro, go away. Go and drive a forklift in a pack house with Trevor Mallard. Oh, can we start a petition to get Trevor recalled? He's got to be recalled. I've, oh. I've said this before. That guy. I know. He just encapsulates everything that's bad about New Zealand politics. And the idea that he's representing us in Pākehā, Hawaii Island is just unbearable. I know. It is unbearable. Honestly, it, giving Trevor Mallard that position in Dublin was a li- literally like buying a toddler who's thrown a massive tantrum, completely embarrassed you in the supermarket, and then the checkout operator gives them a lollipop. Yeah, worst speaker ever, ever. Anyway, to finish off on the Saturday Herald, I did actually glance over at Chanel's column on the Sunday, and yeah. because he was talking about the decision of Victoria University it was actually, I thought, a pretty reasonable column. Yeah, know, reasonable husband. column. But talking about it, my husband and I had this conversation around it because, of course, he's now studying full-time and he's studying completely remotely. And so what Victoria University have done is that they did have remote learning, obviously with COVID, and then COVID uh, has now lifted. And in the law school, they are wanting to bring students back into lectures. There has been a pushback from the student body saying, well, actually, that isn't equitable, particularly for disabled students and that the process to apply for an exemption to be able to access the recordings was overly bureaucratic and there are students with a hard hardship and cost of living that have to prioritize work over attending lectures so it's that conundrum of when is it you give them a hall pass to not be sit in class basically And so, of course, Chanel is sort of doing it from the Marxist sort of standpoint that, no, this has to be equitable and you can't have it and blah, 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 blah. So Cottrell, interestingly enough, had also obviously seen that decision. And he wrote his piece, because, of course, he's looking at this from a business and productivity lens. So Saturday's Herald, working from home doesn't always work. I am someone in one form or another has worked independently a lot Uh, at home or, well, yeah, primarily at home or on the road for more than 25 years, closer to 30, right? For me, it's normal because I've been doing it for so long. But I really did appreciate some of the things that he had in this article because I, you know, wholeheartedly agree with it. So he says here, part-time jobs and cost of living pressures have been the fact of student life for as long as student life has existed. They're the very burdens that once carried help equip our young people for the stresses of modern day life after their studies are completed. I'm all for making it easy for people to get an education, but I fear that we're missing a few things here. In particular, the benefits of attending university are not limited to what's learning during lectures. For many students, a part of the university experience includes the opportunity to live in a new town, to experience different surroundings and meet new people. The chance to move away from parents and stand on your own two feet provides an added set of lessons that, for many young people. It's called growing up. Being forced to meet new people and develop new relationships while outside your comfort zone are critical skills that don't get developed while living at home and going to the neighbourhood high school where you've known everyone for five years or more. They're also critical skills for life. In many cases, the university experience is the first time we're forced to encounter such experience and develop such skills. 
Mm, yeah, those relationships that you make at uni provide a, a mycelia network that uh, allows information sharing, team building. I thought, you know, he got more specific about improving productivity and by saying it's, it's a function of better skills, improving efficiency and using technology better. But it's also about our attitudes to work. It's about teams of people who achieve more by working together working better, smarter, and focusing on outcomes. It's about showing up at work, ready to work. And those little things are so important. Uh, I mean, I've I've taught quite a number of people to work. It's not natural. And I mean, I remember getting out of university and starting work and just realizing there was so much I didn't know how to do, in, including talking to people, getting mm. on the phone, asking for appointments, uh, things like that. And and there are a set of skills that particularly our, our young people are, are struggling enough with that monotone voice so many of them talk in from mostly texting rather than having conversations. Yeah. Um, and, and also the so the other bit, little bit of news that I just heard wafting around the last few days is around these COVID babies which are all the preschoolers are sort of that early childhood age who are now suffering developmental delay because they have been separated from other children and, and the learning that they get through interaction and play in the early childhood space is so important for their development. Especially you see people in masks. I mean, what would that have done to them? Exactly. I used to, when I was wearing no mask to the supermarket and I was probably at one point one of two, sometimes one of one, mm. I'd see kids see me with just wide eyes, just this just this uh, amazed look on their face, and I'd smile and wave to them, and a smile would slowly creep onto their face. Yeah. Their mothers would often be, you know, wide-eyed and terror and disgust, but, you know, they couldn't necessarily see that. No. Well, I had, uh, see, I refused to wear a mask the entire time, didn't do it at all. So what I did as well, as I took it one step further, I went out and brought about two or three very, very bright lipsticks and made sure that whenever I left the house, the lips were on, full on. And right. anywhere I went, I had the biggest shit-eating grin you've seen in your entire yeah. life. To just at least spread a little bit of a smile. Yeah, I have to admit, I did love that whole kind of big white of the eyes that you would yeah. get above the diaper with the like, she's smiling at me. It's like, yeah. yep. When, when it got further along, I was very fond of oh, For some reason, I always picked on tough-looking Maori dudes. If I saw them with a mask on their chin, just say to them, what are you doing with that on? Do you like being told what to do? If you stop doing what you're told, they'll stop trying to tell us what to do, mate. Get it off. Yeah, indeed, indeed. The other thing that I think Cottrell has touched on with this too is the fact that, and again with these children, so these children are not learning to, to develop those skills. And you forget that that is a set of skills. There is a whole big set of skills that you learn once you leave school. Now, I didn't do university. I went through high school and then I got a scholarship and was – went off to become an exchange student. Now, I had never left the country. I had to get a passport, educated in little old Gisborne, but the family managed a farm in the in the boondocks, and I ended up going onto one of the largest military bases in the United States at a time that we'd just gone nuclear-free. So it was, you know, it was it was a little bit we fraught with challenges. We not much about that. That uh, sounds... Whereabouts was it? 
I was just outside of Dayton, Ohio, and I was living, uh, I had one family initially, and then I had to switch to another, moved in with a woman who, which was not the norm, but she was a solo mum. She had uh, three kids and she uh, still amazes me now because she was in her early 30s when I moved in with her. And she worked for Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which, and I lived in the tiny town that was literally engulfed by the base. So it was the service town for the base. The high school, uh, two-thirds of all students at that school were the students of military personnel. There were girls at that school who were in my senior year who were married to servicemen on the base. So they had transferred there as Air Force wives. Mm. It was a different time. But the skills that I learned in that year, you had to cope with things and and learn those sorts of skills. Those are skills that I carry with me today. Whereas I look at this all this remote learning and the lack of interaction, personal interaction, that is actually, it's surprisingly dangerous. And I don't think people realise how much you lose. Well, it's I've a tiny always... proportion of young people who are actually self-motivated enough to responsibly work from home. So yeah, and, and to pretend otherwise is disingenuous, and it's actually really dangerous for young people. I do need. I mean, it's it's tough enough employing young people when you've got to pay them the minimum wage when they're not worth it at, at the level it's at, and so you have to give them boring jobs because that's the only way you can recoup your money. So you can't teach them the sort of skills that are needed to to get them actually earning the money and then be going beyond it. Mm. But also the all of the anxiety that so many employees uh, employers feel around oh, the, the risks of of being accused of of inappropriate behaviour. Although certainly the easiest way to avoid that is just to be very very careful. Yeah. But you know that, that doesn't necessarily protect you from false claims or something like that. And also the low threshold that a lot of young people feel for bullying. I mean, oh. We've spoken before about growing up with uh, grandparents who were in the Second World War and surprised, uh, survived the Depression. I was used to a fairly low threshold of ass kickery. Well, so both our boys, oldest one has had a job now for just over a year. The youngest one has now um, got the same job. I've got both my boys working in restaurant kitchens as dishwashers. Great. Same, same restaurant. Well, and if anybody, any listeners out there, all the ones that have worked in restaurant kitchens I can I can feel you nodding from here if you want to get rid of teenage snowflakery a restaurant kitchen is the place to do it there is rules there's hierarchy and there's no room for bullshit yeah. because that's how they roll and the yeah. skills you learn in a commercial kitchen uh, I've worked in several at that age and they are skills for life and my boys actually love it yeah, you can, and you can do a deal with them and say, hey, look, you know, you're not going to get any blowback for uh, forcing accountability or vigorous urging to increase productivity. Sexual harassment, I'm going to take a very dim view of. So productivity. So I thought the Cottrell um, around that productivity was excellent. And essentially, he's just saying that unless you're one of those very few people that can be disciplined to be able to work unsupervised or at home because those distractions are real and look I've done it but man it's a muscle it does take a lot of work to be disciplined to do it I know you you do a lot of it now with our work that we do here with RCR my husband's now studying full-time but he's incredibly driven so he can do it so we know that we're outliers in this but I wasn't always like that I mean the temptation to 
when I first started, you know, you'd look around, you'd think, oh, that washing needs folding, or I need to put the, you know, walk the dog, or I need to put the, this out uh, on the line. All it's, those it's urgent so but not important things uh, yeah. just come crowding in on you. And yeah, as I said, it's not it's not a skill that uh, all of us are born with. I know I certainly wasn't, and I've, oh man, I've done some procrastination in my time busking. Well, you said you'd done a little bit of work in that space. Are you made some notes around that productivity space. What was well, some of the things I, that you dug what out? I did, what I did uh, was I made some notes upon the arrival of this new coalition government. I made some notes on what I thought they need to do that maybe they're not necessarily doing enough. I guess what I'm feeling is missing at the moment from the messaging, which, you know, it's early days, obviously, but I hope they can get around to this, is that we need... One of those ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country moments. There's plenty of hidden productivity within each Kiwi. You know, all of us could employ more people. We could help more of our neighbours. We could build resilience, drive improvements to education. What we need there is permission and also some structure. Not necessarily the government doing it, but some, some work on best practice. We also need to have the issues that we're facing as a nation brought into sharp relief, basically more of a clear vision of a better New Zealand for everyone. They need to talk that into existence a little bit more. They need to um, the re rewrite the story. They need to Yeah, economically, it, socially, environmentally, and we need the why to go with the how, basically. The old chestnut that I brought up several times of features tell, benefits sell, often accused Christopher Luxon of being all uh, features and not enough benefits. And alongside of that, the government needs to help set things up that they're not managing. And whether that devolution goes back to local government, which they've signalled, and I think New Zealand First are good on that, or better yet, back to families and individuals. I, I think of it as the trellis economy. If you can get some structure and this is what we're going to do, this is what we want, then within that structure there appear niches for people to start businesses. And you could even make a system where you helped people do that by minimising paperwork and giving them the, the basics. And I guess the second point is, and this gets back to what I was saying before about the debt. You know, for the past six years, the, the Labor government have run New Zealand on inflationary debt that has been the economic equivalent of methamphetamine. The wailing we're hearing right now that we've spoken about is the equivalent of the painful withdrawals that are being experienced for the herd of pigs who had their snouts deep in the trough of that extra $100 billion of debt we're now faced with. And, and the key to any successful recovery from addiction is faith that things are getting better, a celebration of your little milestones and wins. So they're going to have to build that into what they're doing. We also need to change our friends. <laughs> so there, there are many in the media, you know, as we said, who are saying, oh, you're no fun anymore. Just have a taste to get through this withdrawal. You know, it wasn't so bad. Why are you giving in to other people telling you what to do? All of those toxic friends that you just got to get rid of. So New Zealand perhaps should uh, think of Reality Check Radio as, as our sponsor, you know, getting us, getting us through this tough time. And there'll be a time when we can look back and, and wonder why we couldn't see how degraded and unhealthy we were. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we've got to have a vision of things getting better. We've got to celebrate our little win wins and be a bit kind to ourselves. The third thing I thought of was 
They've got to stop being afraid of just slamming Marxist appropriation and manipulation of language. They, they can't play on the chessboard that these guys have expected us to play on or, or needed us to play on for the whole bullshit show to work. Yeah. Um, I heard Christopher Luxon tell Mike Hosking that they were going to scrap the fair pay agreement. You know, yeah, we're going to scrap the fair pay agreement, but which Labour bought in as a payment to the union paymasters, basically. Plenty of people li- listen to that and just hear we're scrapping fair pay. And what he needs to say is that it was just more double speak because ensuring everyone was paid the same is anything but fair because some people are more productive than others. And if people are free, they're not equal. And if they're equal, they're not free. Mm. It was yet more cut before the horse nonsense. That, well, that, it, like some pigs, some pigs are more valuable oh, than other pigs. You know, mm-hmm. you know. Normally, the economy improves and wages rise. They kind of flip that. They do it the other way around. Normally, the government makes progress and the media critiques that. But you know, the previous government paid the media to tell citizens they were doing a great job. They put politics upstream from culture. They told us that ugly was beautiful, that victims are heroes, that the suspension of democracy was democratic, that opposing race-based law was racist, that lies were truth. We've got a fair bit of psychological recovery to get through from that. They've got to take that seriously. If, If we don't talk openly about what we're facing, if we don't value truth, we can't make the progress we need. Oh, and the level of censorship too. The other great lie that we were told, this will be the most open and transparent government in this country's history. Oh. Remember that from 2017? Oh, there was that horror. Did you see that? It was the three news thing where uh, after Winston Peters basically said they'd been bought and paid for, <laughs> that $55 million didn't influence us and neither did the full rack price advertising that uh, we were paid probably over $100 million for. There was, a, there was a, an article by Sasha Boroshenko uh, in Monday's New Zealand Herald where she was talking about, well, she was quoting the misinformation project, which is all you kind of need to know. But she said, for example, fake news is a slogan. It's not only misleading, it's also an oxymoron. News is inexplicably linked to information that's verified and in the public interest. A journalist who fails to meet those standards could find themselves without a job. I think you're right, but not for the reasons you think you're right. You're putting the moron into oxymoron there, Sasha. Yeah. But- so, which, well, the other thing too was that News Hub story uh, that was on a couple of uh, a couple of nights ago. Should we have a quick listen to that? Because let's have was, a listen to that because it was a pearler. The lack of awareness. A new government was sworn in today, but the old Winston Peters turned up, accusing the outgoing government of bribing the media, and he issued an indirect order to state broadcasters to stop using te reo Māori. The sense of the occasion perhaps lost on Winston Peters, who minutes after swearing to be a true and faithful Deputy Prime Minister launched straight back to form. First flight pressures. Turning our question about his te reo policy into a direction to the state-owned broadcasters, TVNZ and RNZ. How quickly do you expect government departments and government agencies to, to act in well, removing te reo Māori? Which TVNZ and RNZ, which are taxpayer owned, understand this new message? We'll see that whether these people, with the media and journalists, are they independent? Well, that's not fascinating. I've never seen the evidence of that last three years. 
outlandishly and incorrectly claiming the government had, quote, bribed the media through the Public Interest Journalism Fund. You can't defend $55 million of bribery. Repeating for effect. No, no, you cannot defend $55 million of bribery. Get it very clear. His new boss, completely unawares of his 2IC's antics, just stoked to be part of the occasion. Every minister understands the responsibility that they have. The responsibility of running a country. Hmm. The outrage, the pearl clutching. Oh, I know. Now, just be aware, people, that we have edited that for brevity. But yes, the pearl clutching. And speaking of pearl clutching, I did send you a text over the weekend watching Mihinarangi Forbes on the panel on The Nation. And she even wore pearls. She didn't. Yeah. I was way. I was like, clutch them, Mihi, clutch them. I know you. You're desperately wanting to clutch Gosh, them. She's ghastly in some ways. It's just so cold. They are not going to know for a while because they have become the. When I say they, particularly the press pack at Parliament, the political pack, they have become so accustomed to being literally having a lolly scramble every time they go to Parliament, to now finally be pelted with lumps of coal from the likes of Winston with a little bit of reality. I mean, they're going to have to harden up. Well, you know, the the last point that I made about what the government needs to do is embrace compassion and have it as a brand. You know, it's vital that the new government destroys the narrative that so many New Zealanders unquestioningly believed, which was that the Greens, Labour and to party Māori are kind. You know, a cursory look at the before and after stats shows this to be a lie. I've spoken before about short-term kindness and long-term kindness and returning to my methamphetamine analogy earlier, if someone's struggling with a destructive addiction, the kind thing to do in the short term is to give them more meth. That's the kindest thing you can do in the short term. In the long term, the kinder thing is helping them to get treatment, perhaps even by calling the police and having them arrested. You know, if they're doing real crazy stuff, forcing people off benefits and into work is long-term kindness. Getting people out of gangs is long-term kindness. Forcing kids to attend school is long-term kindness. Allowing employers to fire employees more easily is long-term kindness because it builds stronger businesses. Enforcing accountability for public spending is long-term kindness, and it needs to be spoken about as such. There's, there's a great post by Zuby. Um, I love Zuby. Yeah. He talked about victim mentality. When I was watching, I watched Marai after Q&A in The Nation on Sunday, and uh, I read this and I just thought about Mihirangi Forbes and Scotty Morrison, you know, saying, oh, you know, all those Māori MPs need to cross the floor, basically bring the government down. And this is what Zubi said, if you're confused by why victim mentality is so attractive, number one, it provides a permanent alibi for personal failures. Number two, it attracts attention. Number three, it generates sympathy. Number four, it acts as a social currency with like-minded people. And number five, it disguises negative traits and actions as virtues. And I think that's what they've got to get through as they're being told they're being anti-Māori. It's mm. like, nah, bae, we're just getting you off that drug. Yeah. 
Absolutely. That, that and, drug. Well, and to that end, I mean, you know, Dr. Shane Reti has, for the longest time, they've said he's been sort of the lone Māori face there, but now they've got Tama Pōtaka. And I thought to myself, who is this Tama Pōtaka? Who is this good looking, bored brown brother? I need to know who this man is. He's freshly minted, he's lawyer. He won that Gareth Sharma seat in Hamilton West on the by election, and he won, retained that seat convincingly this time round. He is really impressive. You know, he, I looked him up, Ducks of Tata College in 1993. Uh, he's worked for both Taiwanese. He's, got, he's got serious horsepower, not only in the uh, legal sphere within uh, everyday New Zealand framework, but also the Māori framework as well. One so, to watch, call it now, future PM, do you reckon? Well, I don't know. I don't know enough about him, but he certainly got. Let's put it this way: he's not a teacher or a unionist. So yeah. I'm, I'm good with either of those. You know, I'm good with the fact that he's something a bit different, and I'm loving the fact you throw him with with Reti together with Jones, Peters, and Costello, and all all of these are in cabinet. So well, you've got five so, powerful Māori in cabinet, yeah, and most Kiwis aren't anti-Māori at all, even if we're characterised as such. We want fewer Māori in prison. We want to see the uh, education achievement come right up. We want to see the health uh, outcomes better. But when you think you can do it by blaming someone else for your problems, that that's not kind. No. I hope they start thriving. And, and you know, there's... I was talking to a friend of mine who's a Māori leader who was uh, in charge of uh, the Eastern Community Trust's uh, asset base. And and for a long time, they weren't giving out much money, but they were growing a a big ball of capital. And uh, they were criticised for that in much the same way as Iwi are criticised for not giving more money to Māori. He, He drew that parallel. And it was one I hadn't thought about. He said a lot of them are getting to the point now where there's significant enough businesses to be pumping. And, yeah, well, you uh, just have to look at Naitahu and you just have to look at Tainui for that example, really, don't you? I'm not threatened by that at all. Great. Mm. But we've got to reacquaint ourselves with some basic shared values. Yeah. And we've just got to stop saying, oh, you know, young people are stealing because, you know, the land got taken off them or anything like that. Yeah, I had land taken off me. Well, I think it goes back to your point earlier too, you know, that whole, I mean, you have to change your mindset from, as opposed to what can your country do for you, what you, you can do for your country. And it's that individualism, isn't it? That sense of self-reliance. And, and that's many- the heart of the debate about the treaty. I mean, there, there's that claim, well, you know, by Tino Rangatiratanga, uh, you know, the English version meant, hey, everyone, an Englishman's home is his castle kind of thing. You've got the right of ownership. But, you know, for us Māori, it was more, uh, you know, that the chiefs still got to tell their tutua, you know, the commoners what to do. This is where Seymour's getting his bill to debate the treaty supported the first reading as being hailed as a failure. But just getting that debate is so important. Getting it, you know, Christopher Hipkins saying, oh, you know, they're going to have a debate that will be very divisive. You know, the implication of that is, well, we closed down debate because we thought that that wouldn't divide Kiwis if we just controlled the messaging, yup, yup, that's what it is kind of thing. 
Yeah, indeed. Well, it will be. We will be watching everything very, very closely. And one of the things that I know I'll be looking for, other than the fact that of my prediction of where the media will go in terms of what they will squeal about, but also societally, I think now that we do not have the tentacles and the invisible pressure from our parliamentary system pressing down on us uh, as a society, that there is almost now an unspoken permission to many people in the middle who have been just quietly too scared to say anything because they don't want to run the risk of offence or they don't want to run the risk of even something greater, i.e. our medical workforce. So looking, it will be one of the things I would love to see once things get settled is the number of one's say, for example, medical workforce who will then actually go to the to the ministry and say, look, here are some issues we experienced. We're telling you this now. We tried to say it before, but their way of dealing with it is enforcement. The, the, the stories that will come out are, are just horrifying. Yeah, I watch mean, the space on that. They, they let ACC um, staff off getting vaxxed in pretty high numbers for a reason. They were oh, getting yeah. a lot of phone calls. Yeah, that one went to the wire. I know that went to the wire because I had someone with an ACC and it literally went. I think that's, you know, those exemptions they talk about. I think that they ended up applying one of those blanket exemptions over ACC because they were going to lose too much of the workforce. And we've got to, we've got to buckle up for that ride. I mean, it's easier for those of us, I guess, who have been saying it the whole time probably used Facebook more in the last six years than I had before, just so no one could ever say to me, well, if you knew that or thought that, why didn't you say something? Mm. So I'm, I'm looking forward to having maybe a bit of a Facebook break. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I had, look, I, um, Aotearoa Farm was built out of my year of discontent on Facebook. And in case you didn't catch it this morning, we have now had a rebrand. Winnie Ben has been down at the front gate Tapping in the new sign for Kiwi Farm that he's been keeping safe in the back Can't paddock wait. for the last six years. Can't wait. Yeah, no, it's all good. Hey, look, as always, it's been an utter joy. This has been Marty Gibson with me here for Media Matters. And remember, if you've got feedback for Marty and I, uh, I read out some the feedback earlier with the lovely Liz. If you do have some feedback for us, 2057 is the text number. And of course, inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. Right, well, we'll have, it'll be interesting. We're going to have to get our scorecards out for next week, I think, Marty. Yeah, and we'll start getting uh, our New Zealander of the Year nominations uh, yeah. ready. I, I think that's a go on that one. Yeah. But yeah, as always, it's been a pleasure and keep up the good work, Marie. I know you spend a lot of time doing this and it's great for New Zealand. You're a true patriot. Have Aww. a great week. Hey, it's just nice to have a partner in crime along for the ride. So thanks for that. Amen. Cheers. And we don't disappear, of course. Woke News of the Week is coming up and there's some real cracker stories this week. All that and more here with Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. It's time for the Woke News of the Week. Headlines from this week's Woke News. Winnie's War on Woke. In a spirited first press conference as new Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand, Winston Peters outlined his perspective on woke virtue signalling and drew inspiration from the late Māori land rights activist Dame Fina Cooper in relation to the Treaty of Waitangi. Peters, leader of New Zealand First, officially assumed the position in a unique timeshare arrangement with Axe David Seymour as part of the coalition government with National Act. 
During the conference, Peters emphasised the importance of equality in race relations, citing Dame Fina Cooper's vision for a nation where everyone is equal. He defended policies agreed upon by the coalition, including removing references to the Treaty of Waitangi principles. Notably, Peters also addressed the agreement between New Zealand First and National regarding the use of English in public service departments, emphasising that Te Papa, the National Museum, would not be affected due to its historic name. Peters, also appointed as Foreign Minister, expressed a commitment to focusing on the Pacific in his new role. Despite a tensed atmosphere during the press conference, Peters highlighted the critical role of the Pacific Islands in New Zealand's future and discussed his plans for increased engagement in the region. Doctor Who in a pronoun pickle. In a recent episode of the BBC's Doctor Who, some viewers expressed frustration and pledged to stop watching the show after what they deemed a woke scene featuring David Tennant. The episode, which aired on Saturday, featured Tennant and Catherine Tate reprising their roles. The controversy surrounds the scene where Tennant's character uses pronouns that some viewers found objectionable. This sparked a wave of criticism, with some fans declaring it would no longer tune in. The term woke is often used to describe content that's perceived as overly politically correct or socially aware. The reaction highlights the ongoing debate about the representation of inclusivity in media. It remains to be seen how the controversy will impact the show's viewership in the long run. However, Tennant's scene with the apparent misuse of pronouns has certainly highlighted an overall and growing frustration amongst television viewers. Zuma Rebellion In recent developments, there's the growing trend of young people rebelling against progressive ideologies, often associated with woke culture. Not all youth align with campus radicalism, and some are pushing back against the prevailing narratives of political correctness and extreme progressivism. A survey by Redfield and Wilton Strategies for Newsweek indicates that 72% of 25- to 34-year-olds support the slogan, Go Woke, Go Broke. This suggests a significant portion of younger generation is sceptical of the prevailing ideologies enforced by government, media and big corporations. This trend is not confined to the United States. In countries like Argentina, Italy, young voters have played a pivotal role in electing candidates who oppose wokeism and leftist ideologies. In Argentina, Javier Millet, a critic of wokeism, won the presidential election with substantial support from young voters. The phenomenon extends to Spain and the United States, where right-wing parties opposing wokeism gain popularity among youth. The reasons behind this rebellion include dissatisfaction with the imposed ideologies, a desire for freedom, and the rejection of the perceived elite order. As young people increasingly resist conforming to the prevailing woke culture, they are influencing political change landscapes in a variety of countries, challenging established political norms and signalling a desire for change. Criticism for Disney continues. In recent news, Disney is facing criticism for what some called phony and calculated adherence to woke ideology as their box office numbers take a hit. Lauren Chen, a commentator on GB News, has strongly criticised Disney for embracing what is commonly referred to as woke values in their recent films. The entertainment giant is accused of prioritising political correctness over engaging storytelling, resulting in a decline in audience interest and box office success. The backlash comes as a growing number of viewers express discontent with the infusion of ideological agendas into the entertainment context. 
Disney's approach to inclusivity and social issues has sparked a debate over the balance between progressive values and the authentic storytelling in the world of cinema. As the entertainment landscape evolves, the public response to Disney's strategy raises questions about the future direction of major film studios and the role of political ideologies in shaping our popular culture. And finally, Britain bucks trend. In global politics, a shift away from left-wing ideologies is evident, with more conservative parties gaining ground in various countries. Italy, Germany, Finland, Sweden and Slovakia are seeing right-leaning governments and Marine Le Pen's potential victory in France as a possibility. Concurrently, progressive leaders like Jacinda Ardern, Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden are losing popularity. However, the UK stands out, as recent by-elections indicate a different path. If the Labour Party returns to power, it plans to emphasise woke ideology, including mandatory ethnicity pay gap reporting and potential criminalisation of misgendering. Yet public opinion polls reveal that the British public is generally not in favour of such ideas, leaning more to the right on a variety of issues. The likely Labour victory is seen more as a consequence of the desire for change after a long period of Tory government rule rather than a strong endorsement of woke policies. The first-past-to-post electoral system in the UK makes it challenging for new parties to gain traction, contributing to the dominance of traditional parties. While there may be a temporary embrace of woke ideology, it's predicted that Labour's tenure will be short-lived and the shift towards right-wing policies could occur in the future. Despite the uniqueness of the British political system, some political pressures may eventually lead to a change in the overall country's political landscape. Thank you for joining me. And I have to say no two days are ever the same here on Reality Check Radio. And don't disappear because next is Peter Williams with Peter Williams Afternoons. And he'll have more music, more talk and some sharp, insightful commentary. I will see you all again here next week when I speak with Anne-Marie Waters, writer and UKIP political candidate for the United Kingdom, about what changes have occurred in the UK since the publication of her 2018 book, Beyond Terror, Islam's Slow Erosion of Western Democracy. She's a frank, forthright speaker, so I'll be intrigued to see how this conversation unfolds. And don't forget to tell us what you think. Remember, the text number is 2057 or email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Time for one last song from Florence and the Machine. You've got the love, and I will catch you all here next week. And thanks for being with us on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.